You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for current or former military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence service, foreign service, DOD employees and contractors, and their immediate family members to create compelling, professional live theater and events. Wow, 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 wow. This week's episode. As I always say when we have an exceptional episode, we really haven't had many non-exceptional episodes of this show. Everyone, as I think I've said before, is kind of a snowflake. It's completely individual. I really think I stopped saying snowflake. That makes it th- that has a whole different connotation 2023. But when I say snowflake in this context, what I mean is, you know, it has its own DNA. Um, every veteran artist we talk to is a very interesting mix of warrior and artist and how that comes together and, you know, uh, the particular details, how they line up to facilitate that interesting dichotomy um, existing in one person. It's always fascinating. It's, it's, I don't think we've ever had a clunker where, at least not that I can remember, where I was like, boy, this sucks. Um, so it's always great. Michael Devine had a bit of an advantage in that he lives close enough that we could get together and do this in person. And that really opens up a whole lot of avenues of conversation. Um, it really became just a very rich talk that we have with each other. It's a long one. Um, there's no two ways about it. And I mean, neither one of us really noticed it. It was, um, Mike was a 22 year veteran of the NYPD. He comes from a family of law enforcement officers, including his father who succumbed to gunshot wounds um, earned, I guess you'll say, in the line of duty uh, when Mike was very young. And uh, we talk about how all that led him into being a theater major, um, being a cop during 9-11, working for Cameron McIntosh and some of the elite Broadway production houses, becoming a singer, and being a working actor, working on big films with stars such as Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, Michael Pena, Nicole Kidman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then on top of it all, Mike is just, um, couldn't be a nicer, more insightful, articulate guy. And getting the chance to um, really talk with him at length. I mean, just have a great conversation that really... Um, God, was so filled with incidents and takeaways and uh, revelations. I, um, it, it, you know, it was truly the speediest, speediest three and a half hours I could have asked for. Sorry, my voice is a little jacked up. I've been coaching youth football all day. Um, this is happening far after the interview, so you won't have to bear with my ragged voice uh, during the interview. But this one was. Uh, was truly is an instant classic. I was like, this one is, um, this was special. And they all are. I'm not slamming anybody by saying that. They all are special in their own way. This one, and it always helps. It's always an advantage when you're in person. Um, 
But anyway, it was a pleasure to get to know Mike Devine. I'm Christopher Palmeyer. I'm the Artistic Director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Michael Devine. Show, Mike. Well, thank you. Let's yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and no, seriously, thank you. Thank you very much, dude. I, no, thank you. Are you kidding? You came all the way out here, man. This is awesome. It's such a privilege to be able to talk in person. I freaking love it. The privilege is mine, and your your space is incredible. And the potential, I see some uh, lots of potential. So we should tell people I mean, we we've just been on you know a good what 30, 45 minute little jaunt around yes. the 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 vet rep properties which makes us sound much more lavish than we are. Um, but yeah, man, no, it's great to show you that. Uh, and so anybody else that wants to come on the show in person, come on out here, you get the nickel tour and you get to see everything. Hopefully I didn't just um, reveal a huge secret that you, you had didn't. up here. Okay. No, you totally did not. No, God knows. Cause everybody better be coming out here when this thing opens in April. So it's yeah. all right. Oh, Cats no, it's, out of the bag. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. Um, all right. So listen, so I'm, t- I was actually thinking about how I was going to promote this, this episode. And part of me feels like I should just put your music on and then show pictures of you in uniform and just let that be it. I'm not even going to say anything. I just feel like that would raise enough questions, whet everyone's appetite enough. (laughs) Um, Let me just start with the first thing that crossed my mind. What kind of response did you get on the job to being kind of an artist at heart, an actor, a musician, a singer? How, what kind of, how did your family feel about it? Because they're a family of cops. How did the profession feel about it? It it was definitely a bit of an identity crisis because I literally joined the NYPD from the tour of Miss Saigon. Now, is that a route that most people take in their life? Such a cliche. <laughs> Such a cliche. Oh, that again. Yeah. Wait, so who were you on tour with? So you're touring Miss Saigon, but with who? For who? This actually, I, I, this is a whole detour I won't even get into, but I was in management for a while. I was just the assistant company manager of the the second national tour of Miss Saigon. Um, it was it was Cameron McIntosh's production. Oh my lord. Yeah, and it was wow. incredible. And I actually I was playing all the duh towns like Detroit, Des Moines, Duluth. And I thought, you know, I've accomplished a lot. And I was really proud of those things. Um, but I woke up in Des Moines and I said I'm 26. There's something I need to do. And I want to just try this. Let me give it, let me give it till I'm 30. And I actually, uh, I took about a hundred thousand dollar pay cut and I left the show prior to them going to Honolulu for six months. And, uh, I, I moved back to New York with the hope I was going to get hired by the NYPD because it wasn't uh, a guarantee at the time. So the four year period was for to do police stuff. Is that what that was? I said, I want to try this. And if I hate it or, you know, if, if it's as un, if it's unfulfilling, um, then I can then hopefully Miss Saigon will still be running or I can continue that, um, 
uh, you know, detour I was taking. I, I originally was, I studied acting. And then a friend of mine got me a job working in management, just answering phones um, for, uh, for Cameron McIntosh, who pr- produced Les Miserables and Phantom and Miss Saigon. And, and after a few years of answering phones, they were like, do you want to start learning management? I'm like, well, it's a little removed from acting, but yeah, let's, that would be great. So I got into company management. And eventually they, they sent me out on tour. But it, I, I still had it in, in the back of my mind that it would have been great to be a cop. I was an auxiliary, you know, just a volunteer. Yeah, sure. Um, and I was, in fact, I, I, uh, they sent me out on tour and I had to come back to graduate my uh, auxiliary training. So I, I, so unlike, like I know LAPD, you go through the same academy if you're LAPD reserve, but then, uh, but you can break it up onto weekends, but you have to go through the exact same curriculum and then you have all the police powers, everything, but only two days a week. But I know NYPD auxiliary, you don't even carry a weapon, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very different. It's, it's mainly yeah. a uniform presence. Yeah. Um, you're the eyes and ears, you serve as a witness, but okay. it's, it's so that people can see a cop on the corner, but you have very little power. Um, and okay. So yeah, I, I was trying to hold off doing what I always do, which is starting at the very beginning. Mm. So then I got ADD and just started jumping around. Let's actually start at the beginning. Okay. Who are you born to? You were born to a family of cops, right? Yeah. My father was a drug enforcement agent. And like for DEA. For the DEA, yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. And uh, my grandfather was a detective in the NYPD. And then his brother, my father's uncle, was also a detective in the NYPD. Okay. Um, but I, it never interested me. I, I, you know, it was okay, but I never thought I'd become a cop. My brother, however, w- wanted to be a cop from, like, birth. So when you were a little kid and it's Halloween, what were you dressing up as? <laughs> I mean, were, did you play cops and robbers? Like, wh- hmm. what kind of kid were you then? I was probably dressing up as Batman, which is okay. really doesn't answer the question because it's very theatrical. But yet, there's a little law <laughs> enforcement true. in Batman. So. That's true. That um, is true. But that's but that actually makes a lot of sense. I th- and that's why I think a lot more people that are in the Mill Leo space hmm. are there is a secret hankering for artistry because we all want to be poet laureates hmm. of some part of that very kinetic experience. Right. Right. There, there, there's yeah. something about us that on a primal level that we go, I want to do badass shit. And then I want to be able to talk <laughs> about it and, or at least have borne witness to it. If I'm not the one actually doing it, but at least be able to bear witness to it firsthand experience and then exploit that somehow artistically and go, Hey guys, do you see this? Isn't this cool? And this is actually how this happens. And this is actually what this looks like. There, right. Is there a little part of you that's kind of like that? Or am I just talking about myself? No. In fact, I like that because there is always a part of me that sees things from the outside in. You know, there's a little yes. bit of a of a of an, a detached observer. Yeah, um, which which can be terrible, but I do see things from the outside in. And even when we get into the law enforcement later, I was able to to see things from a different perspective. And I think sometimes I really wish I, I didn't detach and I could really get <laughs> involved and, and enjoy a conversation yeah. rather than uh, you know um, observing it. But um, you're right; I did recognize things like that. At a, at a young age. So I just, I, I took us off track. So as a kid, I mean, were you, what were you into then? Were you drawn to singing? Were you drawn to acting? What were you Not drawn really. to? Not really. I just did normal kid stuff. I did a little, little league. Okay. And, and uh, but I did, I did like the, the school play. I was always in, in, in school play. Okay. But you can go back to Sister Renee at St. Philip's 
Catholic school in Clifton, New Jersey, who Clifton, introduced Jersey, me okay. to uh, the eighth grade production of Oklahoma. That was the first one? Yeah. Who were you in Oklahoma? I was Judd. Really? Yeah. Um, so I think, and I thought this was really cool. And then she had a summer program. It's like, you want, you were great here. Let's, let's do the summer program. So then, then I, I, uh, here's another, uh, little, little more foreshadowing. Uh, I was officer Krupke in their summer production of West High Story. And I really, I started to really love that. And being in New Jersey, just a bus ride away from Broadway, I was able to go in and out. So even in high school, we started seeing some Broadway shows. And I was I was really kind of blown away, especially by Les Miserables. I thought I thought it was incredible, and I, I that kind of kind of sealed the deal for me. Um, and where did the where did the inspiration to actually go see? Was this something your family had always done, with or without you, or were you an instigator in kind of going, "Hey, can we go check out a show on Broadway?" Like, where did that come from? It, to be honest, I remember seeing a 2020 story on Les Miserables, and I was like, this is really cool. This looks great. And we bought tickets, just some friends of mine, actually from that same theater group wow. that did West Side Stories. This wow. was, so we're 87 around. Um, so I remember we bought tickets in probably March, and we went and saw it in November because it was so big at the time. And right, um, yeah. And I was really blown away by it. And, and couple that with the fact that, you know, I really couldn't catch a football. That's a that's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah, because I wonder about that. Um, what does drive kids to theater? You hope it's the positive. You wonder <laughs> if it's the negative. It's, like I would have played football, but I wasn't that good. So yeah. this is going to be the next best way to get applause. I, I don't. It, is that too glib? Is there? I wasn't necessarily looking for applause because I've always and still am. Very shy. Uh, I'm an extroverted introvert. So I, it wasn't, cha- well, I was also a bit of a nerd in high school. And I went to an all boys uh, school. I went to Seton Hall Prep in West Orange. And mm. it was very sports oriented. So I was definitely not being able to catch that football or the baseball or the basketball. I was, yeah. And I was a fat kid. So that was probably um, part of it. And I could, even as the, Actually, the the fact it always made the football team, but, but right? I, I was gonna say, yeah, got a line, yeah. But I but I didn't, and uh, so I really felt like an outcast. And then did that really did that really hit you when you didn't make the teams? Was that like actually a pivotal moment? It it kind of did, although I wouldn't say I was ever looking for applause, but I was l- looking for acceptance, you know. And and uh, I remember uh, high school was just it was. Just being a fat kid alone, it was it was pretty awful. But being a mm. the fat kid in an all boys school, you know, which was very sports driven, that, that yeah, that it, it it did suck in that way. So I I don't and I'm so socially awkward. Huh. It was really terrible. So um, were you hoping the sports would kind of overcome that and kind of be your bridge over any? Like, hey, I, yeah. I might be awkward, but remember, I'm fucking badass out there, and I'm a great middle <laughs> linebacker. Or something, well, you know? yeah, and I wish I put into it. I wish I realized at the time that you get out of it what you put into it. So mm. I really wasn't willing to do the work. Or, um, mm. And this takes us back a bit. My my, I never really had a dad that would could teach me basketball and and football and baseball. My my father, the drug enforcement agent, was he was shot when I was. One, he was uh, he and his partner were doing a buy and bust in uh, in New York, 
and his partner was killed on the on the on the scene. It was uh, it was a drug deal that turned into a robbery. So the uh, um, the the drug dealers uh, turned the guns on them and, and shot my father's partner, killed him, and then my father was shot and uh, paralyzed from the waist down. Fuck. Yeah, it you know it it it, it did suck. You know, but I was yeah. uh, way too young to understand what was going on. And for you, I mean, one it was At must one. have been like normal that your dad was just paralyzed from the waist down. Yeah, like I don't ever remember him walking. Right. <clears throat> you know, and and. Uh, so, actually, it's interesting. I'm, I'm putting it. To, I probably thought of it at the time, and I really, yeah. My my I was uh, my uncle tried to teach me basketball, but uh, yeah, my father was in and out of hospitals for the next ten years, and he he died in '82 from the complications from the shooting. So I, uh, yeah, I didn't. That that might have been another reason. Did you have? Did the community? Did the Leo community kind of? come around and try to fill the gaps was there any sense of like yes. you know hey let's take care of the family a little absolutely very very much in fact my mom is still those are who are still around actually in fact one of my dad's partners was howard safer um who just passed away uh, like a week ago um he was uh he eventually became uh new york city police commissioner yeah yeah right around the time i was coming on the job wow. <laughs> but that's that's a whole other wow. story but so I remember I, I I reached out to his family saying he really took care of my my mom and, and my brother and me all the years afterwards. So my dad's partners, his all of his um, colleagues at the time. In fact, even at my police academy graduation, Howard Safer spoke about him, at the, which was which was really nice. What did it, I mean? I can only imagine. I mean, what what did that mean for you growing up? I mean, again, you didn't know your dad able bodied. You really ever in your life. But was there a lingering, not to double back on the Batman thing, but, you know, Bruce Wayne sees his dad get shot and becomes Batman, right? Mm. I mean, was there some sense for you of like right and wrong, good and evil? Like, hey, some motherfuckers are out there that did some bad shit. And that's kind of, I, what kind of emotional weight was that? Or were, was your brother kind of doing that? And you were like, I'm just trying to find my own way here. And that's <laughs> kind of like backstory, but it's not my front burner motivating factor yeah. you know it it did two things that i'm probably at least consciously aware of it it showed me from a very young age that law enforcement is about sacrifice and it's about the good and it's about putting others before yourself so that's what i was that's what i learned to believe from mm. a very young age so wow. i'm very <clears throat> hardwired to to still see the good in law enforcement you know despite yeah. Uh, you know, recent years. And then I think it's possible looking back that going in the opposite direction could have been by design as well, at least subconscious design. Um, and I went as far away from it as I could. And then I think I always kind of kidded my, my molecular chemistry pulled me back in that direction. Um, so it wasn't conscious. I wasn't actually saying, you know, I want to go out and slay the bad guys. And, and yeah. uh, But I did feel a deeper calling to that, that type of service. I really felt that, you know, theater was great. And I was, like I said, I fulfilled a lot of goals very early on. And, uh, but it was unfulfilling. You know, I, I, 
there was there was something there that I just I wanted to do. I wanted to, you know, be on the corner when the old lady was walking home, you know, and and she knows that yeah. she's okay to get yeah. home tonight, and I wanted to be that guardian angel, and you know, I went into it for, you know, very altruistic reasons. I I I definitely saw the benevolence and that's what I chased. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was definitely, a, a calling that I couldn't, that I couldn't ignore whether it's, it's, you know, uh, holding up the sword. I, I don't know. What was your, what was your life like with your dad? What were the conversations like? Was he resentful about no. his service or what, what did he impart to you? You know, I, looking Back, especially, I can now see it from the perspective of the age that I was, the age I, I've reached the age he was shot at 29, so I can see it from that perspective. He died at 39. I can see wow. it from that perspective, being 50. Um, I, I see uh, someone who's trying to be a dad while faced with these incredible obstacles he, like I said, he was in and out of the hospital for months on end. But I do, I can picture a time where he was, you know, would wheel in his wheelchair to my room and help me hang up my pants. And he's saying, this is how you hang up your pants. This is where the crease goes. And to this day, I can't hang up a pair of pants without looking for the crease to put it on the hanger properly. So I think he was doing the best he could to be a father despite those circumstances. And my mother too, because the care it took yeah. to provide for him. Um, it, it was, was she doing like at home nursing basically for, yeah. Him? Fuck. Yeah. So she, oh, Jesus. they, they had very little time to, they did the best they could, but you know, raising two boys during that period was, was extremely difficult. And I didn't see it at the time. I was probably, yeah. I wish I, I had the maturity at that age to, to yeah. see it, but I, I didn't. But again, looking back, especially from, from an adult perspective, I, I, I really feel for them. You know, I feel for all of us. Of course. Of course. Kind of a weird question. When did you find out that he had been shot? Like at what age did they kind of say, hey, you know, your dad actually wasn't always like this and something happened. Right. Do you remember being told that? Do you remember your reaction to that? Actually, I don't. Huh. I don't remember someone telling me. Um. No, I, I, my brother might, he was two years older at the time. He might, in fact, that might be something I can ask my mom. Luckily, my mom's uh, turning 83 this year and in fantastic shape and health. Good for her. Wow. Yeah. So That's every now awesome. and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. And some, I still sometimes hate to talk about it because I know it, Listen, but I think of all course. of us, yeah. I mean, with my, I don't mind talking about it here, but like with my mom, you know, sometimes, you know, it, it, it brings up some, some negative feelings. And I think even my brother's. He's just got a tattoo with my dad's um, shield number. So, and and I know he's he was also a he's a veteran from the the Marines and and the, and the Persian Gulf. And I know he's he's struggled with with uh, many things. And and I think I don't know. I seeing the tattoo was interesting to me because I, I thought, you know, maybe we want to let sleeping dogs lie in, 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 in some ways, but you felt like he was resurrecting some well, stuff. Um, 
I don't know. Actually, he might be good <laughs> to have on as well. But mm. I think it might have been a. Um, it seems ironic with a tattoo, but there's a, a level of closure with it too. Because I know he has been working on 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 finding closure with with certain things as well. Even as old as we are, yeah, it's still affecting our our, our adult life. And um, you know, in, in many ways, I'm. I don't know, especially hearing his colleagues are passing away now. Uh, you know, Howard Safer was, I think, 82. So I'm thinking he's now at the age where he, they'd be passing away naturally. I'm like thinking about all those years. That's yeah. over 40 years we could yeah. have had. You know, and I don't, don't have a lot of anger toward the, the drug dealers that did it. It wasn't personal. What do you hate? What do you resent about it? If anything, well, I, I look at what was what was stolen all those years, and you know everyone is so protective of their own mother. Yeah, um, I'm mad at what they took from my mother. Mm. You know, and she was, you know, they were high school sweethearts. Is her only boyfriend, and wow. to have him shot at. She was thirty. He was twenty nine. You know, and you know, no one wants to think of their mother's love life. No, right, right, but, right. Um, but at the same time, yeah, she's never gone on a, on a date. She's never remarried. You know, that's her. Her husband at twenty nine is paralyzed from the waist down. You know, and and uh, um, even for you know a twenty nine year old man to uh, to give up his love life at that, at that time. You know, and I know they wanted a third child, and that that never happened. So I think, to go back to your question, there's, it's, it's not a boiling up anger. It's just something that, that simmers a little bit. You know, it's, it's, it's what they took basically from my mom, from my father, from my brother. I don't often think of me in that, in that sense, uh, I, I guess, but I am mad at what, what they took from me. It seems strange because, I mean, in, in, now that I know you so incredibly well after, you know, an hour and 15 minutes or whatever. <laughs> I know you got more but, than most. But, well, no, but I mean, it's, it's uh, you don't seem like someone that's seething with anger. No. You don't seem like an angry person. So I'm, and I'm not trying to play amateur psychiatrist. I'm just curious because I'm mapping that onto how I would feel. I'm just wondering, yeah, what that effect is like, or is it because you were so young that it's just, that was normal, so it didn't kind of leave an imprint because it was just like, well, this is what normal is. I've got a dad that's paralyzed and a mom that's working her butt off to take care of him, and so you're raised with kind of a, just a different set of expectations than other right. folks. Because, it, or, or was there a way that there was a, was there an emotional outlet or some emotional residue? You know, how did you? Yeah, what, how, what was your coping mechanism, or did you not need one because that was normal to you? There was a level of it being normal to me, um, but I also I think I internalized a lot of it because um, I remember when he when he did pass away and I was eleven, um, everyone said, you know, it's okay to cry because I I wasn't crying and people were starting to get a little uh. concerned. Mike Mike's not crying, and I just I just became a zombie. You know, you, it's, I think it's just overwhelming for a kid of that age. Yeah. And I did, actually, I did, I did cry, but I, uh, I guess, you know, it, I think I was still in shock. I think I cried probably a few weeks afterward, but I remember being in shock. But 
it 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 was it's just been a low simmer my whole life. But you're right. There's definitely an element of it having been normal. Um, but also, like I was saying, it it was progressive, and I remember real making these realizations throughout my life, and then the anger would return, like um, you know, on on uh, he he would he should have been at my wedding here, and he should have oh, been at my graduate. Imagine him at yeah. my police graduation, and uh, you know he should have been here, and those those are those things. But it was more, it's. Uh, more sadness than anger, I guess, because I, I, I couldn't process anger or any of those emotions as such a young kid. So it, it, yeah. it, it all came up throughout the years. It's interesting because when you talked about being in school and being driven by sports and then finding theater, I'm trying to think of how that relates to your family life into what that childhood had been like, because you might've been the next mean Joe green, you know, just complete <laughs> savage. If you'd been filled with resentment and anger over it, but that wasn't the experience you had. My brother did. And your brother did. He did. Yeah. He had the punching bag in the basement. Definitely. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think it's because he was older and because he had seen a little bit more of your dad and kind of yeah. lived through that a little more. And also it could just be our personalities, but yeah, I do, I do think so. Even just the two years older could have been that level of maturity that I lacked. Um, I'm going to jump ahead just for one quick question, but when you did get in the police force and you did have use of force incidents, especially non-deadly force, you know, but just going hands-on with somebody, mm-hmm. I mean, did you ever get any sort of catharsis? Out of that, was there ever a sense, and, and I'm not saying no. like you took a telephone book to somebody, but I'm saying, was there ever a sense of like, hey, you know, I'm here, I'm standing <laughs> in similar ground to where my dad is, and I kind of just made a stand against the same type of entities that my dad faced. Was there ever that? Not really. Okay. It, it, it was, it was rewarding to, to arrest someone and take someone off the street who was definitely a threat to the community. Um, but luckily things, things never got that, that physical. Okay. Um, but I really, I was very black and white, um, in terms of, uh, what's, what's right and what's wrong. And it took uh, several years being on the job. There was also the, the zealousness of being a rookie. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, it, I did, I did mellow out throughout the years, but I, there was really no, no, no satisfaction in that. No. In fact, I, I, I often felt guilty because, you know, you, uh, you, you, you arrest someone for doing something and then you bring them in, you start to talk to them and you're like, Oh, okay. You know, but you know, it, it is what it is. But, um, you know, I, 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 I was pretty black and white. It's, I, and I was one, was one to say, I don't make the laws. I just enforce them, you know, yeah. but if I, I might've written some different laws, but I, you know, I was. Let's go back to, um, your childhood to, to how you saw your life deving out when you got into high school, what did you think you were going to do? Did you start to have ambitions? Did you start to go, yeah, I think I know what kind of person I'm going to be. Or did your mom have indications? Was she like, Mike, you should think about this. Like, what were the conversations? What were the aspirations that you had? Having failed miserably at sports, I did. I, I, as I was saying, I found a little bit of solace in in our theater group and in music. I really, I liked music, although I, 
all the the instruments I took, I, I failed miserably at that too. So I kind of was like, I, it seems like, okay, it's going to be acting. Um, and, uh, I remember even like the, the bus was miserable. Um, and I, 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 uh, I remember I found the Les Mis Rob original London cast album and I would just kind of sit and, and listen to that. Um, so just to tune everything else, out. just to tune everything out. Was it bullying? Was it getting picked on or what was it? Maybe, maybe early on, it's just, it was, I I felt so, so, I wish I could tell young Michael, just relax, you know, have fun Mm. with them. Not everything is so serious. Um, and I just, I, I, every time I would speak, it was just like, you know, the record would skip and everyone would like, what? Okay. Whatever. Um, okay. Never mind. Um, so yeah, I, I got very quiet, um, it wasn't bullying per se, but it was just uh, with everybody. And there were, there were a few groups I really felt like I fit in with. Your square peg in a round hole. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can totally relate to that feeling where you talk and like the record skips. That makes total <laughs> sense. I've definitely been in rooms like that where I'm like, I'm just going to shut the fuck up. Yeah. 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 And I was, perhaps I was seeing that, that theater nerd, you know, where we later all found each other. Yeah. Um, but I was like, okay, I'm going to go sit over here and put these, put my Walkman on. And let's stay with the Walkman for a second. What exactly about Les Mis hit you on such a gut level? Because that truly seems like that was a pivotal moment in your life. And it's interesting because it's it's three hours of sad music, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I I think it's the maybe it's the Irishman in me, but I I've always loved sad music. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and it was, and and just one big ballad after another. And I was also really blown away by the quality of voices because they're, most of them, especially early on were very, they were trained operatically, although I didn't Mm -hmm. have a sense to understand that, but they were trained operatically, but they were singing more in in this pop opera style, which was new to me, you know, and I, I never really liked the Rogers and the, some of the Rogers and Hammerstein and the happy stuff. And I didn't really click with sound of music or anything like that, mm. but, um, something about this and it was just, it was the dark style of it. It was, it was ingenious, ingeniously staged. Um, in fact, we were talking earlier. I don't want to talk about shed light in a conversation that no one knows about, but, but just you were talking about a, a theatrical device where you just added interesting sound effects. Oh, right. Yeah. And sound effects, who cares? It's, it's right. It's stupid. It's done everywhere. Right. But when you do it smartly and ingeniously, um, it's, it's, it, it's a, it's kind of a wow moment. And I think Lamez Rabba's fill as powerful as it was with the revolving. I don't know if you saw the original, yeah, yeah. the revolving stage and the barricade. And yeah. it was so over the top, but there was just smartly staged, like when Javert jumps off the bridge. Like how how would people stage that? I don't know, but they were so smart. They had the bridge fly up behind. He's 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 standing on the stage, and the bridge is on the stage, and he takes a leap, and the bridge goes up behind him, and he pretends he's falling, and it could be so silly and eye rolling, but it was so smartly done, and I was just blown away by how smart it was at the same time. And they could have used props and there, there's a lot oh, of, totally. yeah, yeah, there That's was a very sophisticated take on Les Mis though, especially for, you saw that in 87, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's a really sophisticated to, to, cause you're, 
you're turned on by the music, but you're also noticing all the production aspects yeah. as well. I mean, that's incredible. That's rare. I think that's pretty precocious for a kid to pick that up. And I just remember it being cool. Like, this is really cool. The revolving stage. I mean, you can have somebody walking on the revolve and it's as if he's walking yeah. down the street yeah. and the set, the people are moving past him. The sets are moving past him. You can set up the back of the revolve with the next set and then spin it around. It was, it was brilliant. And I, I see that now from a theatrical and directors and actors point of view. Sure. But at the time I was like, this is just cool. Was that the first show you'd seen on Broadway or have you been going to Broadway for other stuff? I saw some other stuff. I remember seeing Cats. Didn't really click with it. It mm-hmm. was cool. Um, so it wasn't just the novelty of being on Broadway. You'd seen Broadway shows before. Yeah. Okay. So you had points of comparison. Yeah. And none of them just blew me away. Did you see Starlight Express? I didn't. But you would think I would because I was I was loving it at the time. I mean, that was I remember when that came out and what a big deal it was. <laughs> and then it like crashed and everything like that. Literally, I, like, I think. Yeah. It's coming back. Is it really? To London, yeah. They're mounting a, a revival. That's hilarious. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, I was going to go down memory lane, but that's that's neither here nor there. Um, so when you walked out of Les Mis, did you feel like gobsmacked? I mean, was yeah. it? What, what did it mean to you? What were your takeaways? I mean, did you start to internalize, hey, what do I have to do to get there? Or what, what did you think? I not only internalized what do I need to do to get there, but I waited by the stage door. Um, and this is actually, this is several months afterward and several times viewing it afterward. I waited by the stage door and I asked the actors, do you, do you teach voice? Do, does anyone here teach voice? I'm a, <laughs> I'd like to learn how to sing like you do. Anybody? I was, you're right. I, I guess I was precocious. Holy shit. Uh, I'd like to think I was a go-getter, but that was pretty precocious. No, that that's, it's all the above. <laughs> And did you get responses? Were people answering you? Yeah. They were like, you go go talk to Ed Dixon. And he was playing the master of the house. And uh, Ed was like, yeah, sure. Let's, we'll, 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 we'll work with you. Like right there? Yeah. At the stage door? At the stage door. And then I, I later would, you know, I'd go to his apartment and, and he'd teach me how to sing. And his apartment was where? In the city? Yeah, in the village. So you would come in from Clifton? Yeah. <laughs> I can't. Uh, it was a different time. And, and how old were you when you were doing this? Probably, I think that probably my senior year of high school, maybe freshman okay. year of college. Okay. Interesting. So, okay. So senior year of high school, independent of Les Mis, what did you think was the next step? Did you know automatically you were going to college? Was that a given? It was a given, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where did you go to it college? Was a, I went to Montclair State. Okay. And did you know it was going to be Montclair State, or were you shopping around? Were you like, hey, I want to possibly go out of state, or what were your aspirations not, with college? Not really. I, I knew that I was going to go to college and study theater, because it was pretty settled at that point. And you'd seen Les Mis at yeah. that point? Yeah. Okay. So just for perspective, I was... Les Mis opened in 87. I graduated high school in 89. So okay. it was those- Oh, gotcha. Yeah, it was those two years that I, I I I was blown away and bowled over and decided to change the course of my life. And then- And you've been taking voice class lessons then for those two years. It took about a year for me to get the guts to go to the stage door and ask the actors. Yeah. So you'd seen Les Mis multiple times. Oh, yeah. I saw it maybe like four times in that in that first year. And it was on what, the last one that you decided to go to the stage door and start asking? Believe it or not, I think I was there. And I actually, 
I don't think I know. It was a the 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 night I saw it, which was in October of '87. Um, I got a poster and I waited by the stage door to get it signed. Okay, and it was raining, so they invited me in. Um, they the actors or security this, the stage doorman, yeah, stage, stage doorman. Door. He he let me in, and so I I still have this poster signed. Um, uh, so I I was. And that's and that's still a thing. In fact, I think it's gotten even bigger. The crowds at the stage doors nowadays yeah. seem huge. Yeah. So they I think are. that's still a thing. But I remember being one of like two people out in the rain. Wow. Uh, and but I remember, wow. yeah, I remember getting a. Getting hey, but a that was not when you asked for voice lessons. No, it was probably a year later. In fact, Ed was the replacement on for the master of the house. So it was probably a year later. Okay. Uh, and was that planned? I mean, did you were you were you I'm at this performance because afterwards I got to go backstage and try to link in with these people or, or was that spontaneous? Was that spur of the moment? No, it was, it, it was probably, probably planned. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I wanted, I didn't just want to learn how to sing. I wanted to sing like they did. You know, I, 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 I especially that original cast, I'd never heard people sing like that. And, wow. and uh, that's, and, and if you hear me sing, it's, it's the way I'm singing now. Yeah. It is. That's right. <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about Sentinels in a little bit, but yeah. yeah. Um, so when you're going to meet with Ed, what were you learning? What was the biggest takeaway that he he was teaching you? We would just start with a song. I remember there was, uh, he had some Pye and Elton John song. He had uh, a song called Just In Time. Just In Time, I Found You Just In Time. I think oh, we were trying yeah. to, yeah, we were trying, and he was—he's a writer as well. So even on the Elton John songs, he would change the words. He's like, "Sing these lyrics; it's a little better." <laughs> I was like, "Okay." Um, uh, and so I think he was just trying to see if I—if I was able to find pitch and things like that. So we started off, you know, fairly crude. Um, at this point, you'd had no training at all. No, I no, I just sing in the shower, sing at home, you know. And you, I think people can't really tell if they themselves can sing, because if you're tone deaf, you don't know it. I mean, you in particular, but uh, no, right. Tone right, deaf right. singers yeah, yeah. often can't tell. So I did, I did want someone to kind of say, yeah, you have, you have something to work with here. Okay. Um, so I took lessons with him for about a year. Okay. Um, and then who did you go to next? Then I probably think I couldn't, I was at this point, I'm in, I'm in college. So I'm taking lessons from the teachers. Okay. So, um, I would go to Ed if I had an audition, um, that I wanted to work on a song or something like that. Um, oh, so you still would see him for specific on a case on occasion. Yeah. Okay. Just to work on a song or something. But, um, I mainly just started working with the, the teachers at Montclair state. So what was the difference in that experience working with them versus working with Ed? Did you notice a degradation in the, it was like, ah, they're okay, but it's not turning me on as much or they're not as good or there's some technical aspect that's different. I mean, what was that? Because that seems like that would be a, a bit of a, uh, you know, you were really inspired to go seek him out. Right. It was okay. In fact, I wasn't like a musical theater major mm-hmm. um, and I wasn't a voice major. So I, I didn't really have classes where voice was the focal point. It was sure. sort of like acting for singers. Okay. Uh, sure. I'm sorry. Uh, 
singing yeah. for actors. Yeah. 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 Um, so acting was 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 the, the the focal point at that point. Okay. You know, my my degree is in acting, and I studied acting, and then I kind of worked on the musical theater just so I can get more parts. Why? Because it seems like Les Mis really did a lot for you, but you didn't go, okay, I want to be part of the next Les Mis, whatever the next Les Mis <laughs> is, I'm, I'm aiming for that. Why did you focus on straight acting more? Well, actually, if Montclair offered a musical theater oh, okay. degree, possibly. Okay. But I also felt that voice wasn't, there were people, there were music majors who were studying voice as, as a um, degree. I just thought that wasn't well-rounded enough. Because interesting, wow, yeah, I, because I, I liked acting just as much, and looking back, I'm glad that I did because I, I think, you know, whether you're singing or you're or you're in a straight play, I think acting is basically the same set of skills. Sure, sure. What did you? What was turning you on though about acting? What was so enticing about that to you? Did you find playwrights that you were really gravitating towards? Yeah. Um, what I liked about it, I think, again, maybe, and this is this is actually a good psychotherapy session for me as well. <laughs> I might have to give you a co I charge double. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's possible now that I've kind of recognized the truth in being the the theater nerd in high school. It's possible that I liked the escapism. Yeah, I liked becoming someone else, and I liked getting out of my comfort zone uh, and getting up in front of people because it was, like I said, I was an introvert. I remember even in high school when you had to read your essay in front of the class, here's the guy that went on to become the uh, actor singer. My hands were shaking. I was nervous. I wanted to pass it off. I couldn't do it. I was ready to throw up. So it wasn't like I loved being in front of people. I, I hated it. Um, which is interesting as to why I pursued it. And I think it was because I liked a, the escape because when you're, when you're reading your own essay in front of your class, I'm still Mike divine and, and this is horrible. Right. But when I'm acting right. in front of a group of peers, I'm Eugene in Brighton beach memoirs. So I can do whatever, whatever I want. That I, I think that has plenty of precedent. I think that's a lot of people feel that way. That's um, what did that mean for you then? It's funny. I always think one of the best things about acting is getting the chance to walk a mile in someone else's shoes and not have to pay any of the consequences, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. for you, um, who were the characters and the roles that you grab? Who were the most liberating for you? Actually, I just mentioned one, which is interesting. Was yeah, okay. wow. and and because I remember, especially freshman, uh, sophomore year, I remember doing a lot of Neil Simon, and uh. I, I really liked a lot of his stuff. And and that's such a great character, Eugene Morris Jerome, because he went on to three different plays, Biloxi sure. Blues and and Broadway Bound. But um, I was doing a lot of the stuff that was assigned to me, which took me further out of my comfort zone. Because when you're a theater major, Mike, you're going to read this scene from Equus. I'm like, Equus, oh, okay. Never heard of that. Yeah. Or here's one from M. Butterfly. I'm like, oh, oh, this one's interesting. Okay. It, I rarely got to choose. Wow. Uh, yeah. And when I did, I, I, I maybe I've just forgotten so much of it. But 
it was a great way to spend at college because you were constantly, you were, you were doing plays for credit. So all of it was, you know, what was given to me this, this year we're doing these, these four plays. And that was my, my whole freshman year, these four plays. And the wow. next year it's these plays. And yeah. we're doing a small play in the studio theater. We're doing our big main stage musical. And again, I wanted to be in, in as, as much as I could. So I'm going to continue singing and polish my audition song for the main stage show. By the way, terrible dancer. I was I was as bad at dancing. You're only a as, double threat. You, you could not be the, the triple oh, threat. That's, yeah, that's why I became a cop. That's, <laughs> that's my triple threat. But um, I, it also got me out of my comfort zone too because they they made you take a few things, and I I did a couple dancey shows, but very much against my will. Another probably another reason I like Les Mis because there's no dancing. It's true. A little bit of marching. That but, is true. Yeah. yeah. For um, I I kind of glossed this over, and I just want to make sure I'm clear in my mind. Obviously, you're going to college as an acting major. What was that conversation like with mom? How did the family receive it? Was it at all controversial? Did it make sense? Was everybody like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course it it did make sense. Okay. Yeah, right. it, it, it did. And thankfully, mom's always been entirely supportive. She okay. didn't always get it. Sure. But entirely supportive. So there was no okay. like, no, you're going to study business. Sure. There was, there was none of that. She's like, okay. So theoretically in your mind at this point, you're thinking I'm going to go here to Montclair state four years, be an acting major and then go to the city and start auditioning. Right. Yeah. That was, that was pretty much it. Okay. All right. And was there any kind of forward planning in your mind about, okay, based on all the stuff I've done, I've done my Peter Schaefer. I've done my Neil Simon. I've got all these different places, things I've been exposed to. Did you know where your sweet spot was? Was there anything where you're like, was there any sort of um, self-awareness of based on who I am, this is how I need to market myself. These are the kind of roles I would want to go for. Was that starting to develop the business sense of like, hey, what type am I? Hey, what kind of roles should I be going for? As much as I love Montclair's date. Mm-hmm. Um, the emphasis was on the craft and very little was placed on marketing. In okay. fact, we did in, in my, if, thankfully my senior year, we had a semester where it was called the business of acting and it was mainly okay. aud- how to audition, Okay, which was great. It was Frankie Faison. Oh, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. He, he taught it. He was great. Oh, that's cool. Wow. And he was very instrumental in my starting to approach acting from, I would call it like the Nike school of acting. Just do it. It the first few years, again, when you're looking about craft, it can get very pretentious. Yes. Yes. Um, and a little heady. And I got caught up in that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm walking through jello. Right. And while right. quoting Shakespeare and, and, um, he was just sort of like, here, read these lines. No, stop acting. Just read them again. And okay, there you go. And a lot of that did come back later. But again, to answer your question, I wasn't probably, I don't even know what marketing was at the time. There was no, what's the word branding? I know that's a big word now, but um, no, I just kind of thought I would just, I remember falling in like the, uh, the sort of the nerdy guy next door kind of thing. There was a little bit of that going on. Um, what was your pipe dream? Did you go, hey, I just got to get to Broadway, or was it TV and film? It was both. I wanted to, to do it all. Okay. Um, TV and film seemed so distant. Yeah. Even being in New York. I think especially being in New York. 
yeah, Broadway seems like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's there's a path here. TV and film, it's like, oh yeah, there's some place out in Queens you can go and there's sound stages, and then it's LA. It's like, okay. Yeah. I, that was my perception of it. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also so much that we did was on stage. Um, in fact, I really wish if I was running the program, there would have been more uh, acting for film and TV. Mm. Um, and some people will say, oh, it's the same, but it's, it's really not. No, yeah. A- adjusting, even in film, you're adjusting the size of your performance for the, the, the um, depth of the camera angle. So it, it's, it's definitely not the same. In fact, we may still get into this, but when I was started auditioning for film and TV, I was very big. Oh, yeah. I would play to the size of the room, of and it took me a long time to to get that. So looking back, I, I but again, I was a theater major, so you're studying theater. Yeah. Um, but I, I I wish they they expanded a bit because and and that's uh, although I'd love to do movies and TV. Thinking thinking back, theater was probably the the obvious choice. Um, were you making friends? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Did you find a community? Oh my God. In fact, I just had a little college reunion last weekend. Wow. The same people from 30 years ago. Wow. Had them all up at the house and, and had an afternoon there and uh, brought out the the photo albums. And it was, it's a great way to spend four years of college and sort of a school within a school because. Sure. And we went to every class together. We did the plays together. You're up till midnight together. And and then yeah. in some cases living together. So it was, we got very, very, very tight. And we were sort of the, the misfits from high school that we found each other. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So after college, you graduate, <laughs> is there, are you still high as a kite going, yep, going into the city to be an actor? Or was there... A quick gut check of like, holy shit, all right, uh, am I ready to do this? Or what was that like for you? <laughs> I'm going to be an actor. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, senior year, everybody was doing Our Town, and, and uh, <laughs> I had a friend that got me a job. Um, he's like, the Marquee Theater on Broadway is looking for someone to assist the house manager. And uh, I'm like, well, yeah, okay. It's not what I studied. It's not really my intention. But hey, a job on Broadway. It's in the business. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I took that and uh, I kind of, I was already setting my sights on graduation and I kind of left all that behind. I left all the, the stuff in school behind. And uh, I was probably the only one who assisting the house manager that spent more time backstage. <laughs> I'm like, again, who's this? I say, oh, this precocious young lad. I would have been like, who's this jerk? What does he do here? Who even is he? Um, but Little Costanza moment, the assistant to the traveling secretary, but you're helping Tartable out with his swing in the locker room. Son of a, what the hell's happening? Yeah. So funny. I wish I could have told young Mike to just relax a bit. But it was. Uh, what were you doing backstage? Were it was. Well, the, the, actors the sh- or what were you doing? I was kind of harassing them, but it was the. Not not real. I don't I don't like to think I was, but um it was the goodbye girl with Martin Short and Bernadette Peters. Oh, so my this Lord. were ninety-three-ish. Okay. Um but I I couldn't just be the assistant to the house manager. I had to you know start bringing the VIPs backstage. And then I'm I would let me hang out a little bit backstage. And then I started to get to know everybody. Oh, and oh, you guys have a bowling team? I should join your bowling team. So I'm now, you know. Bowling at the Port Authority after the shows with the guys. And then I was, nobody even knew what I did there. <laughs> and interesting, the way the, the way the Marquee Theater is set up, the box office connects, the box office on the street, but it connects through backstage. 
Okay. You can either go out or, or you can go backstage. In fact, I would often run into Martin Short, who was making his entrance below the stage as I was leaving oh, the box so office. Funny. So uh, instead of leaving and going into the theater, I would just go back backstage. And uh, before I knew it, I was saying, like meeting the stage manager and the company manager. I'm like, what does a company manager do? Dana Sherman. She's like, why don't you trail me and I'll show you what a company manager does. Wow. Um, yeah. So before so much I, for being an introvert, by the way, you know, that's interesting. You're right. Uh, I say I'm an introvert and I, maybe I've just become more so over the years or maybe I was just among my people. You just felt at home. Yeah, I did. Yeah. In fact, even God, um, the, they had the Broadway show league, the softball yeah. league. Yeah. And I remember going there to watch and Les Miserables had their team and all the Broadway shows had their team. And you had, you actually had big celebrities playing softball. Yeah, sure. And, uh, I'm like, I can't, play. I'm not on the team, but I'm like, Hey, you need a, you need a scorekeeper. And I, I'd be like, you know, stargazing while, you know, runs were coming in. I'd forget to record, but, uh, I remember being so nervous. The guy's name, he was in Les Miserables. Jordan. I don't, I don't want to make this the Les Miserables podcast, but, no, it's all right. no, but it's good. Jordan Leeds was an actor in the show and I was so nervous. And I'm like, I walked up to him and I go, hi, I'm Jordan. I'm like, uh, and thinking to myself, you idiot, that's his name. And I didn't want to say anything. So they called me Jordan. <laughs> You couldn't correct him. That's all. That's that's like half. I don't know what that is. It's like half SpongeBob, half Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, that's really funny. That's a great sketch. It's so true. And they called me Jordan for like oh my god weeks while I was uh, I was I was keeping score that I knew nothing about. <laughs> that's hilarious. by the way. What that had to have been a little surrealistic being the person you appeared to be at that time to suddenly be around the actual cast of Les Mis on something of a peer-to-peer level. Yeah. I mean, was that mind-blowing? Were you like, hey, I'm, I'm just about there. I'm, I'm, I'm right here. I'm hobnobbing with all these It was folks. mind-blowing. It, it really was. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm kind of glad that I had that in me because, as you'll know in a second, it led to other things. But I remember there was a show called Aspects of Love, which had Michael Ball, who was the original Marius, and a couple other people. And I was just hanging out with, I don't know if I was being their scorekeeper. I eventually, I think I learned how to keep score. But I was just hanging out with them. And 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 Michael and a whole bunch of them were like, okay, we're going to go out for lunch now. And I think I actually said, mind if I come? Wow. <laughs> Boy, when you're young and you just don't know it better, and people give you the grace. I guess. So often. And I have you know? a very... Uh, you know, I look you like can't do that at our age. You can't go. You can't go do that now. People are like, "You're a fucking creep." You hey, know, girls, you, you mind if I? <laughs> Seriously, yeah, yeah. If my if I ride on the subway is any indication, you can't do that anymore. But but it's definitely but definitely like yeah. It, it, when you're young and you're coming out of school, and it's clear that you're starry eyed. People do tolerate that. Yeah, you know, in some weird ways. Yeah, and I'm having lunch now with Michael Ball, and it was the Lincoln Center. Uh, and, and I'm like, who am I? Why did I, how, how do I even fit in? And again, it was same, same with, wow. I, it could be creepy, but you're right. I, I think I had this you know, very approachable, thankfully personality, but looking back, I really hope I kept it in check. I hope I wasn't just, you know, uh, trying to force myself into, into their lives. But did you, was there, I mean, I, I would totally understand if it was simply just, starry-eyed but was there ulterior modes where you're like hey maybe they'll 
ask me to be in a show or so? Like, oh, were you thinking there was some career aspirations? There just kind of wasn't. That, I wasn't, thankfully, that yeah, that conniving. I wasn't, uh, um, you know, there was, it was more like, I just want to be their friends. I want to hang out with them. I want to. Wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, um, but what, interestingly, with the goodbye girl, um, that actually, that, that was closing because I, th- I think when the two leads were leaving, um, so I, I the uh, stage, the, I'm sorry, the house manager at the time, the guy who I was assisting, he's like, you know, I, I had this internship that if you if you'd like, you can work in her office. She's looking for people, and this was continued in the same vein. She was a general manager, Charlotte Wilcox. So I, I'm like, yeah, I'll take a, an internship. That'd be great. And then before I knew it, they hired me, and I was now. Um, you know, kind of ingrained in the world of general management. Um, and then that led to, uh, to Cameron McIntosh's office and, and, okay. and, and, uh, a couple other offices too. So at any point was this altering how you were viewing yourself and your career potential? Yeah, it was, was it? as, as yeah. much as I wanted to be on the stage. I also thought it was a more sensible approach to theater hmm. because, you generally work for a company and then when the show closes, they sign you to the next show. Whereas if you're in the show, right. Yeah. You, you, then you start from scratch again right. and, and, and auditioning again. So I did start to think that, okay, maybe this is more sensible, but it wasn't that rewarding. It was just okay. And, uh, and there were some incredible opportunities. Again, it, a lot happened fast. Um, uh, I highly recommend interning for, for anybody that can afford to, uh, you know, work for, for $50 a, a month or whatever it was. Um, but you become indispensable and, and you really become part of it. And then when they're looking to hire, they eventually will, Mike's a good guy. He's doing a good job. He's here. Yeah. He's yeah. already got a yeah. desk. Yeah. Um, so that, I think that really helped me. Um, Would you recommend that for actors to learn other aspects of the business? Do you think that's helpful? I want to say almost no, because uh, unless you're looking to get away from acting, because if you're an intern, say in in a producer's office, you're they kind of don't want you if you if they know you're eventually going to be an actor, and if you're worse, if you're say in a casting director's office, oh yeah, you're, you're yeah, it's a conflict of interest. Uh, I I kind of don't, which is why I didn't want to say I gave up on acting, but I really kind of put it on hold. Um, because I was kind of enjoying it and the pay was actually starting to, to be pretty good and it was steady and I was, you know, probably 22, 23 at the time. And you said you took a hundred thousand dollar a year pay. Oh, cut. well eventually. Yeah. Um, and you're, that's a 26 at 26. I was, well, cause you're on tour, you're making per diem as well. Sure. So I remember I was making a th- over a thousand a week untaxed in addition to my salary. Fuck. Yeah. Wow. And uh, it was interesting. I had to, becoming an NYPD cop, I had so many tests to take, but I'm out on tour. So I would like go to take my psych test coming in from East Lansing, Michigan. Or um, I remember one guy saying, oh, I'm sorry I'm late. I came in from Brooklyn. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I came in from Boston. (laughs) Well, and this is before there was any online aspects, right? So you're physically having to drag your ass back to the city every time you have to do something, right? Yeah. Okay, so do you think had you been acting, had had 
the connections you were making gone in the creative route as opposed to the management route, would you, would the thought even to have become a cop have percolated or would that never have materialized? It's a good question. I think it, it would have to be, I'd have to examine just, money's great. And I see all these people settling jobs for the money, but I, I money's always been kind of like, it's nice. It's nice to have enough, mm-hmm. but I'm always looking for this itch to scratch this this satisfaction i want to love what i do i want to i i want to work and play at the same time and i i, I don't yeah. want to go to work i want yeah. that you know it's a cliche but um so if the acting was if i found it was fulfilling which i looking back it would have very very unlikely that it would be it's a very very as you know of course it's it's a very difficult first profession yeah um and I would think just when it becomes fulfilling, it's taken away, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I, and I don't know if I had the wherewithal to understand that at the time. Um, and I was doing so well in management that I didn't want to tell people I was an actor. You know, yeah, and there's so many people in yeah. that business that started out as acting and then they went into casting or management. Yeah. Um, but, you know, especially like with tour with Miss Saigon, I really wanted badly to be on that stage. Um, wow. But I don't even, I don't think I even mentioned to some of them, some of the actors that, uh, you know, I was, I was an actor too, but no, it's just, you don't get, then you don't get taken. You don't get taken seriously. I know. Yeah. So I was quiet about that. So it's fair to say that probably the idea to become a cop then is rooted in the fact that some deep, desire that really had driven you into show business was no longer being addressed. Is that fair to say? I always told the story is I looked back and it was un I was unfulfilled. Yeah. And then I used to joke that, Oh, providing entertainment for rich folks is unfulfilling, but it can be totally. rich folks or otherwise it's, it's can be very fulfilling. Um, so I kind of changed that tune, but there was, I was also very overworked and I think it it clouded my judgment to a degree. Because when you're on tour, we were grateful that it wasn't one week. We'd play a month in a city. But I got two days off a month because on the yeah. you would travel on our days off in the front and back end. Um, and I, I had a great, great boss, but he was a workaholic. So I had to be at the, I was at the theater for maybe 14 hours a day. Yeah. And I think I burned out. So I think it might have clouded my judgment. And I'm kind of grateful that it did. But I was really burned out by it. Um, so I was ready for uh, a break. What was the first step you took to become a cop? What did they have back then? It was, it was a, you have to show up to a recruiting session like seminar or something what was the steps do you remember well i was the auxiliary for a bit so i i oh, yeah so when yeah. did that happen how uh, yeah i remember that being maybe i went out on tour in 97 with with miss saigon and i remember as i said i they sent me to charlotte or pittsburgh i forget what the first city was but i had to come back for my graduation from the auxiliary and I would literally do my auxiliary time by by driving or flying back to put in, uh, you know, eight hours, and then I'd go back out on tour. But that wasn't the plan. I, in fact, they I didn't see uh, Miss Saigon coming, 
they were just like, hey, want to do it? I'm like, sure. But wait a minute, I got a few other things. I just be, I'm about to become an auxiliary. And I thought that would be a nice way to test the waters, to kind of see sure. the NYPD from the inside. And So what were you doing when you applied to be an auxiliary? What was your actual money-making job at that point? I was still, I was in- Were you in, at Cameron McIntosh? I was, you? yeah. I was okay. in the office. Right. Yeah, okay. I was working in the but office. So you're just New York-based working in the office? Yeah. I worked okay. for maybe three different management offices, the last okay. being Cameron's office. Okay. Um, but so, you weren't going out on the road? In no. other words. Okay. So you had planned that. So, okay. So now I got it. So the auxiliary happens. What was it like then on that first auxiliary assignment? Did you, I, I can't even imagine the different feelings that could possibly emerge where it's like walking in my dad's shoes a little bit. Yeah. Totally different experience, totally different way of relating to people. Suddenly I'm not in a, you know, a management position. I'm now this rookie auxiliary cop. Oh, you're yeah. looking at a parade or something like. I mean, what what was it like? Was it was it thrilling? Was it? Did you get a shot of adrenaline, or was it, you know, kind of Jesus? This is cognitive dissonance. <laughs> I'm like on streets I know as a civilian, and now I'm yeah. standing here as a cop. Like, what, 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 do you remember any of the takeaways from that? Oh, I haven't really thought about this in a very long time. But it was. I remember thinking just how cool this is. Mm. Um, I'd. I liked wearing the uniform and I liked being like, it's a license to talk to anybody. Like I can stand uh, on the corner again. It's, it is, it, 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 it's antithetical to my claiming to be this introvert, but it could also, it's being a role. It's stepping out of myself. Um, so that, that, that could have been an aspect of it as well, but it did, it did give me license to be somebody else. In fact, I felt like, like a foot taller, and I'm an average size guy, but I I felt taller, and I I just felt, um, like, you know, I'm like an overgrown Boy Scout, huh? Like I'm I'm like, and I'm looking for like, where's the old lady to to walk across the street? And I'm like, we're I'm constantly looking for that. Um, and and I'm sorry I, I, to jump so far ahead, but. Through I did 22 years in the NYPD, and it never changed. And I felt as much as these feelings people have toward cops, I only saw overgrown Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. That's all I saw. Maybe it's my tunnel vision or you know the way I was raised, but it was just day-to-day looking for the next right thing to do. It's interesting that you keep coming back to – God, I sound like an amateur psychiatrist again. But it's funny <laughs> that you keep coming back to – looking for the old lady to help across the street um, as opposed to looking for the next bad guy to punch in the mouth or looking for yeah. the next it's, it's, but there was a sense of that sense of service, that sense of being of aid to others. Yeah. That seems like a, um, and don't get me wrong, I'm all for punching bad guys in the mouth, but that, that does seem like a very positive. Yeah. And I don't necessarily, I mean, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's not a negative deteriorating weight that you're carrying. That does kind of free one up, make you less self-conscious, turn you outwards, you know, like right. there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said for that. Right. You know, it's a different noble quality. Right. Then I think what a lot of people would ascribe or maybe even a lot of people feel potentially when joining the police force. Yeah. Um, interesting. And I, I kind of quoted him earlier and I'm, I'm, drawing a blank at his name. There was, 
a writer, a detective in the NYPD, and he's going to kill me because I actually worked with him for a short period, but he used to write anonymously for the New Yorker, I believe. Huh. And I remember being in Pittsburgh with Miss Saigon when I read an article that he had written. And God, I, I didn't want to steal his quote earlier as to why he became a cop, but he wrote that his standing on a corner in uniform and seeing a, a, an old lady walk by him, his just being there was proof that no one's going to mess with her on her walk home. Mm. Those are his words, uh, almost to a T, because it stuck with me forever. I kind of changed it around a bit because I didn't want to steal his quote. <laughs> and, oh, he's going to kill me for not knowing his name. We, he we wrote can, Blue Bloods. Oh, okay. We can, we can find that out. It'll be in the show notes. We'll credit okay. him accordingly. Um, but I remember being in Pittsburgh and looking at that saying, uh, that's kind of pointing me in a, new, in a new direction because I loved that perspective. Um, just my existence, standing there in a uniform, is proof that no one's going to mess with her on her walk home. I just thought that was great. And that's, it's funny, later I did <clears throat> undercover work in, uh, in narcotics. And I, I was working with, God, it's all meshes together. I was work, my sergeant at the time was um, Connor McCourt who is uh, Malachi's son. You got to be kidding. It's crazy, right? Wow. And Frank's nephew. Wow. Yeah. So he was my sergeant and we would sit like three in the morning, be sitting in a, in a dump of a car, not in uniform. And he would see someone, you know, a frail looking old lady, old man walking home. And he's like, let's be her guardian angel. And, uh, Wow. She wouldn't, and this person would not know They'd it. never know it. They'd yeah. never know it. But he would turn to me, let's be her guardian angel. So we would almost maybe follow her to make, make sure she gets to her door correctly, um, safely. Um, so that's why I say these are, these are overgrown Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. That's really moving. And very, that very really true. Is, I never shared that know. story until the past few years when, when uh, you know, there was, people were looking at cops as, as, so much of the enemy. I'm like, yeah, it's really not. Yeah. This is, this, yeah. this is the reality. Yeah. Um, okay. There's a bunch of threads I want to pull on, but I got to figure out which one to go with first. Let me go with this. So did you think as you pivoted towards NYPD, that theater showbiz, even music was kind of just not the path or was there a sense that, did you have any inclination that you could possibly do both at the same time? There was definitely an inclination. Oh, there was. Yeah. And now okay. I think the marketing side of me was, was starting to come alive because you were a cop and had a whole new. Yeah. Angle maybe. Uh, yeah. I, I, I can't remember if it was going in or if it took a couple of years. I honestly forget if, if I went in with this thought, but I was like, you know, I'm a, I'm a New York city cop with a degree in acting. I'm like, that could be marketable. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm sorry. I just got to share. I, I had a flashback when I lived in LA. I remember uh, to get into the groundlings, you had to go audition. You had to uh, get a number to go audition for them. And the line would go down Melrose, I think, where the groundlings was. It was just a line of people, all these LA actors, all waiting in line to get their number to go audition for the groundlings. And there was a fucking cop in uniform in line. Uh, and I was like, 
Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I was like, only in LA do we have cops trying to be actors and yeah. get into the groundlings. But it's, but it was like now then I hadn't joined the military yet at that point. And after I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You can make that play. You yeah. Know? You know, I, I, part of me is rolling my eyes, but part of me is like, I'm the, I'm that guy. Um, no. And why wouldn't you be? And why wouldn't you be? You paid the fucking admission price. Hey, you all could do the same thing. Come join. Come yeah. join. You can come queue up too. There's no limiting principle here. Uh, yeah. And and again, I'm trying to think when that was. If I went in saying, I'm going to, this is, I'm not just going to be a cop, but I'm going to return to acting. It's all going to be great. It's going to be awesome. Just watch. Um, or if the acting came later, because I do remember, actually, I was working with David Zayas. Oh. Um, he was, we were cops together. He was, he quit the NYPD because he got Oz. Right. He was on Oz. Right. He just was up for the Tony Award. Yeah. This past year. Oh, forgive me. He's gonna, I can't remember the name of his play, but he no, just no, was up for a Tony Award. Yeah, but, that's right. So I was working with him. In fact, he was doing a sh- he was doing Midnights and he was doing a show called The Beat, I think it was. And we would watch uh we would watch him in the lounge uh uh with him while he's on the show. And I'm like, this is this is pretty cool. In fact, we were I remember watching him, we were all watching him uh on Oz. <laughs> and all the guys going, Oh, okay, David, we, there's a side of you we never saw before. But, um, wow. so that, did he know that you were an actor that you had been acting that you'd had been out of theater degree? I don't know if I was that open about it. I'm trying to think. I came on in 98. I still remember like taking my rookie squad to see Miss Saigon, which was literally down the block. The Broadway production was down the block from my theater. So I remember even joking. I'm like, let me just go in and just look at their statement for the night and just see, uh, you know, how much. Let me just make a few changes here and just. Oh, their advertising get a little high, and <laughs> I didn't do that. But That's it was hilarious. still the same company I just worked for. Wow. But what, what um, precinct were you? Uh, Midtown North. Okay. Which is covers the north side uh, from 45th up to the park. Of all the precincts, uh, I know of all the precincts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, did that mean anything to you? Was it, it was that has to be surreal to go? I was just walking these streets. Yeah, it was by design. Um, did you feel that at the time? How cool it was, or whether it was by design? It was by design. Did you? I mean, because because honestly, that's that's bizarre that you're like. I mean, if you're a rookie cop and you could turn to your partner and go, "Yeah, you know, I was just." working in Cameron McIntosh's office, yeah. you know, and now you're literally like walking by Miss Saigon yeah. on your beat. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty fucking bizarre. It, it was bizarre. And again, I always joke that I had this identity crisis and I, of course I knew at the time I knew everybody. So I knew that everybody, yeah. and we used to call it on being on campus. Um, but, uh, if going back to one of my earlier conversations, if you remember my father's colleague was yeah. commissioner at the time. So I did have my choice of precinct. <laughs> I'm more open about it now, but no, at the time I didn't be? tell anybody, but yeah, I, I was able to choose where I, where that's I fat. So you, so you really did think, I mean, even if not consciously, there was a part of you that was like, I'm not done with theater. No. I'm not done with my artistic side. No, I knew somewhere that there, there's going to be a crossroads and I didn't know where it was going to be. And I kind of made it, it was a creative challenge to see where, where these two will, will intersect. But yet you didn't want to tell people around you on the job. Not so much the acting. They were, they were cool about my having just worked for management. 
Okay. Um, they thought it was weird, but they were cool. They're very accepting. And cops are weird to begin with. So I was just, right. you know, I, I kind of fit in to a degree. They were just, they're also, it's such a family that they just embrace your weirdness too. It's like the theater um, <laughs> Well, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, did you find that it was, that it was similar to the friends that you made in the theater community or was there a different dynamic or was it not as strong a bond? Like, what did you find? It was a much stronger bond because as close as we were in the, uh, in the theater community, we would bond on a show and we'd have so much fun. And then, Oh, next week's our auditions again. So we're going to be competing for the role we both yep. want. So yep. there was a little bit of a reset every time. Um, and I found the people that, Again, I also I'm not super competitive, but but there 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 were some egos in in that. Sure. Um, especially when I got the part someone else wanted, and vice versa. Um, so with the with the NYPD though, it's like, and you know it. You're when you're how close you get when you're in the trenches with someone, and when there's literally life and death situations, how how well you bond. Um. You you bond and you you're spending eight hours together in a car with someone, sure. more than you're spending it at home sometimes, and you you truly bond, and especially when you hear someone you know calling for help on the radio, how yeah. close you'll get there and what it goes how it goes through you, it it brings you very close. And again, I was in a precinct that was it was not high crime. We were right. we were very very busy, sure, and we had areas where you know. Um, it got pretty dangerous, and we were very, definitely in very dangerous situations. And then we all went through nine eleven together, so you you bond very quickly. Without there was never any backstabbing. There's never there's none of that. There's a difference in the bond between positive experiences bonding you. Like I think of like college buddies. We had good times together. There was a bonding that happened with that, and there's the bonding that happens through bad times. Yeah, and that's a different bond, and I think it's a deeper bond. Because it's the life or death business. Yeah. And that and as much fun as you had. And it's funny. This is my experience. So tell me how this, if, if this is similar for you. But I think when you've had a life or death experience bond with people, it's hard for me to bond with people po- and over positive experiences to the same degree of depth ever again. I remember like high school buddies, college buddies. It's like, oh, friends for life because, God, we had so many laughs together. This was so much fun. I will never have that degree of fun again ever with somebody. I will only <laughs> because it's, because I have, I have bonds that are deeper, not as persistent. I don't see these people very much, but there's a bond on a certain level where I'm like, that's a bond. Absolutely. That's a bond. And yeah. and I'll never and and it has we have to go through that together in order to have that bond. And unless I do that, I, I'm never hitting that degree of depth again. I don't right. know. That's me. But does that relate to hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. And and uh yeah, I think maybe it's 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 when the stakes are so high and interesting. Think cops and this may be true for the military too. I I, I um was not in the military, you know, I was it's fun. I mean, I've never thought of it that way of the different kinds of bonding though that happen. Um, I think there is something very, um, I think that's one of the major marks of delineation between a civilian and somebody. And I group military and law enforcement together on this and somebody in the profession of arms is understanding that distinction. I mean, here, 
mean, full disclosure, like, you know, just day-to-day life for me now. I mean, it's great. It's a pleasure. It's a privilege. I'm never going to have bonds with people I meet, friends I meet here. Right. The way I did. So, and yet you want to, because you're a human and you want to have some degree of social interaction and some degree of connectivity. And it's not a crime. I mean, it's like, okay, you'll bond, you'll find some degree of common ground and that's great. But there's, but it, it'll, you're aware, you're acutely aware of how not superficial, but just how, how it's not as deep and trusted a connection as it could be. Right. Now I remember what I was going to say. Sure. Um, People look at cops, and I think the military as well. It's just so, I don't know, stoic. And and you're asked, and it's true to a degree, you're asked to be completely emotionally detached. And you have this outward persona that, as I said earlier, it's kind of larger than life. But when you're on the inside, I can't remember, I can't even count the number of times I've seen grown men in full uniform break down crying. Yeah. Um. Over and over. I see it all the time. Um, which they would never let the outside, no one on the outside would ever see that. Sure. Um, so when you and I are, are looking back at what happened just an hour ago and we were the magnitude of, you know, we just almost died an hour ago. Yeah. And we both are processing that together. Um, it does, it does, it creates a bond that you can't say, uh, we have an equal bond in, uh, you know, sitting together desk side by side or, or right. just, we, we, yeah, we did Pippin together. It wasn't that great. Right. It's not the same as someone just tried to kill us an hour ago. That's interesting too, because I think there's also that difference between a bond forged trying to build something and a bond forged trying to survive something. Hmm. Wow. I think those are different things. And the first thought that crosses my mind is I'm thinking of, um, I guess I'll preserve some degree of anonymity, but guys in, in, you know, tier one units or very specialized units that have, you know, these immense vetting process. So bonds that are just welded together in that brotherhood, and then they get out of the military and go to private business and there's falling outs. Uh, yeah. And there's a sense of, wait, hold on. We used to be in, couldn't have been a more tight knit unit, but the dynamics now changed because now we're trying to build something. We're trying to do a business and make money and establish a, a company brand or whatever. Right. And that's a whole different way of framing this life or death connection that we had. And it's a different thing than when we were just trying to survive and execute a mission. And it's interesting how even then the bonds change and it's because of the dynamic of the, of the stress under which that bond was made. And it's not necessarily better. It's just different. And so yes, we can, we can have that, you know, there's nothing wrong. It's not to demean let's call them frivolous bonds of like, Hey, we're entertained <laughs> together. It's, but there's also, it's a different stressor. It's the, the you stress of going, Hey, we built show, a show. We did Pippin <laughs> badass. And there's a you stress. There's not distress. But then when there is a distressful thing, it's just different dynamics. And it's interesting how those don't always translate 
the brothers you had from distress situations aren't always the same brothers you're going to have in a eustress situation. Well said. Absolutely. I don't know. I'm kind of thinking this out loud. I don't no, know. No, it sounds you know. great. And I do. I also don't want to say that, oh, my bonds are better than someone else's bonds. You know, that if someone sure. works in an office, has great bonds too. I don't want to say my bonds are better than his. But, but it's situational it, too. It's, it is situational. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember later in my career when I, I was working for the detective bureau out of headquarters, I was working, you know, an office job pretty much. And, and we, I sat next to the guys for 12 hours a day and we created different bonds and, and, but they, they weren't, they weren't quite the same, you know, and especially funny looking back with my, the people I went through nine 11 with even just we're, we just passed the anniversary. We all sent each other texts, just, just reaching out, thinking of you today, even here, 22 years later yeah. to that magnitude that, that, I wouldn't be forever bonded with with this set of men and women, and I'm sure you you've been in, in in similar situations where you have that, and you you will always have that. Yeah, and, and um, I want to ask about 9/11 a little bit. I was at the towers that day. Really? On jury, I was at jury duty at 71 Thomas Street. Wow. That morning, I, I worked a graveyard shift as a proofreader because I was acting, and I was directing. I just directed my first play. It had opened that weekend. We oh, were wow. dark on Monday and Tuesday yeah. was 9-11. Play never opened again. And that ended my directorial career pretty much because then I never got back to directing. Still? Really? Uh, well, until now. <laughs> until I came back. Okay, good. Until good. I came back now. But um, but it was uh, – but anyway, but I want to ask you about 9-11 because, uh, yeah, that's – let's get to that in a second because uh, there's a bunch I want to I talk about with that. But, yeah, so – I wanted to ask you first, before we got there, do you remember your first code three? I assume that NYPD calls it a code three. No, we have a uh, 13. 13. Is that, is that emergency calls that lights and sirens? A 13 is an officer. It says officer in need, but it's basically officer down. Okay. All right. So that's, that's as high as it can go. Okay. But as far as like uh, uh, an emergency with the magnitude of 9-11, I don't even think we have a code for that. Right, right. Yeah, that was a whole. We have levels thing. of mobilizations, and you those might be similar to different types of codes. Right, but I we nah, we don't have a code to even. No, I mean that. Well, that one I remember. Forest Service. I learned after the fact had to come in and run, and that's where they implemented the ICS, right? And started first time an incident command system was set up so that everybody could talk, but it was the Forest Service that implemented it because they were the only ones that had knowledge of the ICS and how to integrate oh. multiple responses from fire, police, EMS, military, national guard, all that. And they could slot them. Um, I learned that when I joined the army, then we became firefighters and we started to learn about incident command system and NIMS and all that stuff and how that, all that integrates. Anyway, I don't, I don't know if you even were aware of that, but I, we, you were in fact, you just gave me a flashback. We I was bouncing around to all different, I had different assignments all that night, but I remember one of them was an incident command center. Where was that? Port Authority? But I remember being in a huge room and I just had to sit at the NYPD desk. I think it was in its infancy at that it's time. It's like a fusion cell. Yeah, like yeah. putting it all together. It's fucking, okay, we want, I, I, I'm trying to hold, keep my ammo dry before we get to that. But yes. <laughs> um, I guess one first one though is Midtown North. First off, what was the dynamic? So 98, 99, 2000, what's the... Pickpocketing. I mean, what are you dealing with mostly? I mean, <laughs> but also as a rookie in Midtown North, yeah, I it was great. Uh, it's like yeah, yeah, divine. You got uh, Times Square one. Wow, 
Times uh, you're you're all the other you know half dozen rookies in my unit. Times Square too. Time, when we each had a block in Times Square, and it was the best. Um, you know, and the, and the worst thing you had was uh, you know uh, yeah the street vendors and stuff like that, or you know um, God, there was really not much. Uh, yeah, the problem was uh, I'd be posted in front of like Virgin Records, which was uh, 45th and Broadway at the time. And within an hour, somebody's stealing CDs and I got it. There goes my night. Now I got to go inside oh, and, and process this stupid arrest. Got um, but for the most part, it, it was, it was, it was great. It was like the, the best way to be a cop. Where, what was, so 90, I remember 98 was the year I graduated college and came back to the city. And that was where my mind was first really blown at how different the city was than the city I was raised in. Oh, yeah. And I was like, holy crap, this is like, I can walk everywhere. Yeah. I wore sandals. I was like, what? <laughs> like, this is fucking nuts. Like, yeah. um, I mean, it was, it was wild. What were the hot spots in your precinct? Then was it Hell's Kitchen? Was it just kind yeah, of we did. We did have a, a slice of Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. We, we started, we had everything. It was, it was from Carnegie Hall to the projects. Um, so we, what, which projects, which some ones? along 10th Avenue. Um, okay. 10th Avenue and like, uh, we went, or like, no, no, we okay. only went as high as, uh, I think at that side, 59th street. That's the ones by Lincoln center. There's kind of ones just West of Lincoln center. Right. And there's some, there's still some South of there. Okay. Um, right. those are the proverbial West side story. That's like where West side story took place. Wow. Wow. But we had some along the West side there, I think. And not, not like if we were up, you know, uh, farther north but um some along 10th 11th 12th okay uh but but not no not a lot okay so do you remember your first lights and sirens your first oh my god this is if it wasn't code 13 or whatever what what was it like your first kind of like adrenaline pumping okay hey shit this is actually the job yeah well for the first God, I don't want to say maybe six to nine months. We were all on foot. We didn't see cars for a while. Gotcha, yeah. So all of us, I remember my first post, and again, I was blessed as a cop. Um, my first post, uh, I was on uh, 57th Street in front of Carnegie Hall. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> but I just oh remember I was God. with uh, kind of a negative Nelly, and he's Billy Conway. And even though we had nine months in the police academy, we spent the whole night him going, I don't know what I'm doing. You know what you're doing? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm like, just shut up. Just do it. Just stand here and, and we'll take it as it comes. But um, it's a good little waiting for Godot moment. Two cops, <laughs> two rookie cops on the first night out. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Um, but whereas say there was a, a 13 is all the way. That's like a cop right. is down. An right. 85 just needs a cop needs help. Okay. Um, it's It could be an emergency. Could not be. Sure. But because... We're on foot. I just, I do remember just running everywhere, huh. um, even if it's a few blocks away. But the cars would have already been there two minutes. Gotcha. Afterward, but um, I, I do remember running around, and, and the some some of the uh, veterans kind of roll in their eyes. They're like, "You don't need to run. You're not going to make it in time." Um, uh, and we, we did see cars. It was, again, <laughs> it's it's so weird now that the. the the uh, careers are intertwined or, or it's how I view things. Yeah. But yeah. every now and then we would get thrown into a car and here's me going, it's sort of like the leading man is out tonight and the understudy gets to go on. <laughs> I remember the first night, all the rookies were in the cars and we're like, we, I'm like, how did this, it's, 
and again, it's like the Miss Saigon matinee where everybody's sick, and like we got the the C team on, but uh, they're all wonderful. But um, we saw Cars later, and and it, it was a lot of like it's it's because it's such a job that you can never say okay, I. I can do, I, I understand how this job works because it's so different every yeah, moment. Yeah. And, and there's never a time where you can say like, oh, I got this. I, I understand this job, but no, it's, it's just when you think you do, it's just going to go out the window. Do they still have those posts? I feel like I don't see cops on foot. I mean, maybe around Times Square itself I do, but I yeah. don't see them up by Carnegie Hall standing on a, a street corner anymore. Well, Midtown North and Midtown South actually still have a theater squad. Okay. You would have thought I'd be perfect for that. Yeah, really. Jeez, um, yeah. Maybe if I, if uh, later, but those were all the salty uh, veterans that had the theater squads. Um, but you, because those blocks, just managing those crowds that come out and then yeah. they wait by, because yeah, yeah, yeah. if, if they're waiting by the stage door, they're going to go into the street. So yeah, totally. all the shows had, had a, had a theater squad. And I think like Carnegie Hall and it depends, but generally the foot post like we had, I think they're a thing of the past. Yeah. Unless, just because everybody's so short-staffed now, those were all um, supplements. How did it feel being a cop? I mean, did you feel fulfilled? I kind of did. Okay. I I really did, actually. I, I really felt in my element. Looking back, I, I don't know that I could do it now. Just because I think it's in a number of ways it's changed, in a number of ways I've changed, but I remember it being very rewarding. And I, it, it was so out of character for me, but yet I felt so at home, um, which is odd. Um, but uh, I, I, I did, I, I don't know how I did it um, in many ways. And uh, like the, the danger angle never entered my mind. Like I didn't, I didn't care about. Um, a danger angle. And it's not from a, a standpoint of bravado. Right. It's just, I really didn't, it didn't, didn't really uh, affect me. Was there, was there gangs? Was there any kind of gang involvement? Was there any kind of organized entity that was operating in your AO? Or yeah. Believe really? it or not, there, there was because Times Square became a meeting point for every kid in the city. Sure. All the outer boroughs would all just come in, into Times Square. And we, we dealt okay. with sort of, you know, there was, the glitz and glamour, but there was there was a, a, a an, an element there that that uh, you know. What, what were they up to? Was it just meeting, or was there actual? Were they trying to do stuff there? I mean, it's not a great area to kind of pull off some huge thing. I mean, was it just like swapping dime bags? Yeah, or what, it, what there happens? was a lot of that. It all seems yeah. so innocent now. Looking, yeah, back. there was yeah. never any. Um, like nowadays, there's there's these grand sweeps where twenty. 20 kids will go into a store. There were, there really right. wasn't any of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it really it seems like crime out of a Charles Dickens novel at this point. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, and it, and it kind of was. I mean, that was when the Sex in the City renaissance kind of was happening in New York, right? And everybody, yeah. I mean, I know just on the civilian side, then we got, we're all looking at each other like, oh, we, we can walk the streets peacefully now like safely yeah like wow we can fucking do anything we can wear nice clothes out <laughs> yeah i mean i my whole life in the city i never i was always worried about hey make sure you can run in whatever shoes you're wearing outside the house make sure you can move i even had a knife that i used to always have from the time i was like 14 in my <laughs> back pocket because yeah, i was like hey just that. don't know you know i remember the you remember the old Times square boxing club 
The, no. It's now where the Condé Nast building is. So oh, the old wow. De Niro movie, the, De Niro did a movie called, it was a very small independent film in the early 90s, late 80s. And it was, and they filmed it in the the Times Square Boxing Club. And it was this gritty, it was on 42nd Street itself. It was across from the strip, from the peep show, Lay Girls. And people, oh, that, so do you remember Lay Girls? Do you remember that? That It was like right on 42nd Street itself, probably yeah. between 6th and 7th Avenue, I think, if I have to remember. Or maybe, or maybe 5th and, no, it had to be 6th. Anyway, it was right across from that. And it was this little staircase that went up to the second floor and you walked in and it was all oh, newspapers wait. across the entire thing. And it was a very small yeah, I do remember space that. and they had two rings and it was like, and I used to go box there and I'd oh, always wow. have a knife in my back, in my, in my back pocket because you had every transient homeless prostitute, whatever in that staircase going up and down. Oh, yeah. And then you'd get in there and, you know, they had like the old school, you know, sit up mat, you know, where you hook the the pads onto the bar and you're at an incline or decline oh, and that's you're cool. like in the tank top <laughs> gritting it out you know it was like it was like and it was such a vibe it was and now I think like Gleason's and everybody else kind of mimics that grittiness but that was actually the gritty place cool. it was and it was cool now it's the Condé Nast building so now Vanity Fair is published there and all the rest of it that but whole block go figure is, that, that whole block is swank you know amazing. yeah oh but, it's like it's I there's a lot to be said for when Disney and Giuliani were in charge. It's it's true, and I wish the the creative part of me wishes it hadn't been Disney, and he'd instead. <laughs> there was an idea that I want to say I might just be completely making this up. I think I am. I think it was my wish that like all the actors and celebrities that were opposing Disney bonded together because I think if I remember right, I don't want to cast aspersions, but I feel like I remember hearing Alec Baldwin or somebody saying the Disneyfication of New York or something like yeah. that. If it wasn't him, I apologize. But something to the effect, I thought, what if everybody opposing Disney just got together and said, hey, let's us get a consortium and buy these old porn houses and turn it into vaudeville things. So it's not Disney, but it's something so New York. Yeah. I thought that would be badass, but that's like takes a huge amount of coordination. And I get why that it's just easier for Disney to come in and buy it up and do their thing. And as options go, not the worst option in the world. Brings in a lot of tourism. People aren't dying. Like, fair enough. You know, I can deal yeah. with that. But anyway, I remember that was my little fantasy from that era. That's like, cool. Man, that'd be cool if we had a strip of just vaudeville houses. You know, yeah. that'd be awesome. You know, that'd be such a throwback. And who knows? Maybe we'll get there now with the strike and all it'll be It'll be Disney <laughs> running a vaudeville house. Yeah, right. but, but Seriously. Uh, yeah. Know, or the Colgate vaudeville theater. Yeah. yeah. It'll be some mass market commercialized vaudeville or something. Okay. Let's not delay this anymore. <laughs> 9-11. So you were on duty that day or did you get called in? I was due in for, it was election day and I was due in, I think for like one o'clock. It was, it was a local, right. it was, yeah, I forget. It wasn't a major election. It was, but it did delay the election. It did delay Giuliani. Like he had to stay in office. Oh, remember that, that wasn't the elect. I don't think that was the election. I think it just two months later in November, didn't they punt the November election? down the road because they were like, Hey, we need Giuliani to still be mayor because there's too much shit going on with the cleanup or something. Possibly. I don't remember that. I, I was in a, I, I, I don't think I'm making that up, but I might be anyway. Oh, sorry. I interrupted. No, so, okay. Yeah. So yeah. So I remember was, I, I, a guy from my unit called me. We both had election duty. It's and my unit. I was just doing still in Midtown North. I was just doing, we were doing plain clothes, narcotics and um, a street level, not, not, not like borough level, which is bigger. But, um, 
he called me up and, and I remember one of my first questions is like, do we still have election duty today? Um, not, not because I'm thinking, uh, and then that's, I didn't realize the magnitude that I'm like, what did you know at that point? I had watched it on the news and I remember being, cause I was normally due in much earlier, but cause I wasn't due until one, I kind of slept late. So I was watching it on TV. Wow. Um, and here I'm making light of it, but I, I was beyond freaking out. Were you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all of us were, Yeah, I was, it was, I was watching it as, as someone at home, like the rest of the world. And Where were you uh, in Clifton? Where did you live? No, uh, I was, it's when I became a cop, I moved to Long Island. Okay. So I was in Long Beach, Long Island okay. for like the first 15 years of being a cop. So I was, I was, I was there. And, uh, I, I remember actually, uh, I saw the, the towers go down on TV and in my mind, I thought one of them was the Empire State Building because I thought, I guess they were bouncing around, and and uh, I remember thinking that the Empire State Building just fell, and I just, and my brother works down there, and I couldn't get in touch with him. I remember being, getting dressed to go to work. Um, I was going in regardless, but I remember literally I had a cordless house phone, and I remember being in the shower letting the water run over this cordless house phone, trying to still find like my brother and checking in with my mother and, um, wow. and the guys at work. Could you get a signal? No, I don't think I did. Cause I probably wouldn't have taken it, it, it in with, it, in with me. Cause I remember, yeah, remember we, we could get signals. We could right? get signals. It's really no. hard. Yeah. And I don't think I, I remember having a cell phone during nine 11, but I think I had just gotten it. So I don't think I was using the cell phone. I, I remember having one down there, but I don't remember when I got that. It was still, that was in its infancy as well. But I remember my house phone in the shower trying to find my brother. And then I got dressed and I went in and I remember it being a really crazy commute because there was nobody on the road. Yeah. And normally it's, it's back to bumper to bumper oh, tra traffic. Yeah. And the, the eerie thing was that there was nobody on the roads. I was the That's only right. one I saw on, on the Long Island Expressway. It's like the Omega Man. You're like the, oh, yeah. the end of civilization. Yeah, yeah. like yeah, the stand yeah. or something. And then it wasn't Long Beach is is right on the Queens Nassau border, but south. So as soon as I got up, I, I was able to see it from like wow. uh, the bridge heading in. And then I got to the precinct, and it was just it was chaos. And we had people that were missing, and we had people that were there at the time. And and did they send people down to Midtown North? Send people to the towers yeah. when they were going. Yeah, they were. They were uh, as it were like our whole day tour was down there as it was happening. We they just left their post in Midtown and just went down. Wow. Um, How many and, guys did you lose on that? Our precinct, none. Really? No. Wow. Uh, surprisingly, yeah. Wow. I'm trying to think. The there was the original twenty three. NYPD lost twenty three in total. So the original twenty three. And then I think Port Authority lost, I want to say 37. Yeah, somewhere here. Um, but we had two guys that I worked with. Both of their brothers were firemen and they were lost. Mm. And I remember being there for one being told. Um, oh, and uh, they sent me to St. Patrick's Cathedral because they were identifying targets, potential targets. Because we, we, we didn't yeah, know if this was over. Follow-ons. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 100%. Um, so most of my unit went to hospitals waiting for people to come in who never came in. Um, and then I was sent to Times – I'm sorry, I was sent to uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral where I was able to to look down Fifth Avenue and I could see it see it there. And I, I really wanted to be there, but yeah. 
here I'm, you know, this is, I'm, I'm where they told me. I, I got there later that day. Uh, I was just bringing, all the restaurants were donating food. Right. So my first assignment was bringing food back and forth. Gotcha. So I, I got to ground zero that day. Um, trivial question, but the first thing that popped in my head is, was there a decision in your mind when you were getting dressed of like, should I be in plain clothes today or should I be openly identifying myself as a police officer? So, cause that's going to be the job today is like, make sure that people know I'm a cop. Like, did they have you come in in uniform or did you go in plain clothes? Interestingly, NYPD, I know a lot of smaller towns will go in in uniform, but we, we weren't allowed. We had to change at the precinct. So we would always go in in civilian clothes and always change at the precinct. Okay. Um, and I just, uh, I just, you know, I was, we were suiting up. Everybody's um, in uniform. Everybody's like in uniform. Blues. And in okay. fact, yeah. detectives who've not been in uniform in, in yeah. six years yeah. are, are in uniform. Everybody's in uniform. Um, and I, because th- if anything, we would have, because our day tour was still there. So we would have, need people to backfill the day tour to answer 911 calls, which surprisingly there weren't any. Nobody was calling 911. Really? Yeah. It was, it was the, one of the quietest days, uh, you know, for, for weeks that went on. It was just like no yeah. crime. Yeah. Or people just weren't calling it in. Did you notice that out on the street? Did you notice that like you almost didn't have to police anything? You were just yep. doing emergency Absolutely. stuff? Yeah. There was no, uh, um, it was, we were never bonded like that. Yeah. And in fact, <laughs> we had this local woman, you know, uh, always strung out on drugs, always in trouble, always prostituting herself. And I remember we saw her on the block and, uh, she just gave us a big hug. Yeah. So it was a weird when cops and robbers were coming together. It, that, I can't think of a better way to say that. I, I mean, not being a cop there myself, but that was so much the vibe. Yeah. I mean, I remember being on the subway the next day and everybody, and there weren't that many people on the subway, but those that were, were looking, we were all looking each other in the eyes like, you Okay. <laughs> yes. Right. And you were like, "Fuck! Did I just move to Wichita? Like, what? I, I'm, I'm suddenly in a small town. Yeah. Like everybody cared about each other, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter who you were, where you were, what you did. There was no class system. There was no nothing. There was just this bond, and everybody yep. wanted to check in on everybody. Like, holy shit! When you talk about bonds of survival, yeah. Like everybody in the city was bonded at that moment. Yeah. It was. It was. Like the nine twelve yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. effect, and I still, I, it's it's in us. We're capable of it. But you're right. The subway. I remember someone would sneeze, and everyone, God bless you, God bless you. You know, wow. Uh, yeah. It it was like nowhere else, no other time. But but it it was here. You it had a thousand different emotions going on at once. Yeah. Um, and but but I remember in the first few days there was just this. We did. We didn't think it was over. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Did you even get a day off any time for the next couple months, or did they keep a pretty regimented schedule, or did they task you out? We would no. We would not have gotten a day off for a while. I remember actually my foot. I was directing traffic, and my foot got run over by a car. So huh. I got a couple days off for that. Um. No, I don't remember. It was months, I think, before we got a day yeah. off. 
And was everything, were you still looking at other potential sites? Would that continue to be the focus or was everything starting to be directed towards downtown and uh, doing There was a work? time I remember where this was probably, this could have even been the following day because my first full day at Ground Zero was that Thursday, but I think it must have been Wednesday and I forget where I was. I could have been at the precinct, um, but- over the radio, there was a cop yelling into the radio that we have a confirmed bomb in the Empire State Building. Holy shit. It was a bomb-sniffing dog who got a confirmed bomb. And I remember from 54th Street, we were all heading there. And I remember I saw a friend of mine saying, like, Steve, you need, to, you need to leave right now. This is a confirmed bomb in the Empire State Building. It's still going on. And I was calling up my family saying goodbye. Um, it turned out to be nothing. But the bomb sniffing dog did get a positive. So, but I think the cop was just so spooked with what was going on. Of course, of course. The way he sounded in the radio. We have, I remember clear as day, we have a confirmed bomb in the Empire State Building. So I thought, here we go again. Luckily, that, that did turn out to be nothing. I mean, I, I can probably imagine, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I mean, yeah, what was going through your, I mean, obviously you'd never had a jolt like that before on the job, right? No. I mean, how, I mean, not a lot of people live through their final goodbyes and get to talk about them after. I mean, what, what was the emotionally like, I mean, what were you, were you on fever pitch already just because of the recovery and what were you, all the cleanup from nine 11 and the, the mindset of like, there could be another attack that you were mentally prepared for that. Or was there a sense of fatalism where you were like, yeah, holy shit. I mean, did you feel prepared to go at that moment? I don't know if I would ever feel prepared to go, but I was going, Yeah, you know, and, but we still had all these images in our head of, of the towers falling and, and, uh, um, but I do remember. So, oh, I did have. A, so, I must have had a cell phone because I remember yeah, walking, calling, yeah. calling, saying goodbye. I, I definitely had a cell phone, yeah, because I remember making a few calls like that. But, uh, yeah. What, what were the conversations like, or did you leave messages? I think I left messages. If if I, I don't remember the actual conversation. I remember the actual act of calling. I'm sure my mom would have picked up. I don't remember if I, if I, I might, and I, I probably wouldn't tell my mom I'm, I'm headed to something. I probably would have said, just call to say, check in say, I love you. I love you. Wow. It would have been something like that. And I was single at the time, so I didn't have any family or anybody to call. Yeah. 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 Um, but it probably just, you know, my mom and brother would have checked in with them. But, um, but I remember very vividly seeing a friend of mine, uh, and telling him it's happening again. It's still going on. Um, and then, but I, I don't think we got very far. We probably, I maybe got to 42nd Street before it was called off. Doesn't take much though. I mean, it doesn't take much to, didn't, didn't have to be a long call to go. I think that was it. And then even if it gets relieved a second later, it's like, wow, oh, I just went to that place. Wow. Yeah. I, and a lot of us looking, we all of us remember that because the, the, the way the cop was screaming. Yeah, it, it was, yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask a weird question. It's one I've asked of a couple of other people at different points, but this seems like a very, appropriate place to ask it in that moment where you thought this, this is it. And I'm, I'm headed to my death. Was there any even very small flicker of a thought that one of the many reasons this is going to be a tragedy besides the fact that I'm going to lose my life is that 
I never got to get on stage. I never got to like my, the artistic side, all the gifts that I've had, that I've developed, that I've spent time in, even the seeds of other plans of where my career could go, all the plans you'd had pre 9-11, all that stuff. Was there any thought of like, and motherfucker, I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss out on that. And, and like, and not, and not like selfishly or anything like that, but just like there's talents that will go unused under, you know, never utilized. Was there, was that even a flicker of a consideration in, the, in that moment? I did have to walk by the Imperial theater where like you sons of bitches. Wave goodbye. Oh God. Oh fucking hell. Um, not in that moment. No. Okay. No. In fact, which makes me think, cause it's all such a blur that I want, I wasn't, I was pretty shut out to that because I knew also that the first like five years of being a cop, I'm not going to get a day off 9-11 or otherwise. Um, so I kind of was shut out to that. I knew that was going to happen later, but mm. I do remember about a year after 9-11 saying, I think at this point, maybe I better start fulfilling some goals I had without a doubt. Do you think you wouldn't have gotten around to it as quickly if not for 9-11? Probably not, no. Really? No. In fact, one of the first acting jobs I had uh, was a movie about 9-11. So I'm trying to also get the perspective. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was called The Guys about a firehouse. I was just an extra. But they were looking for cops and firemen to fulfill a uh, funeral scene. Oh, it had to have been a year later. I have to check when, when that was filmed. But, um, but when I got that job, I mean, I say it's a job. It was an afternoon, right. extra free yeah. lunch. I remember telling people, I'm like, I, I want to fulfill some dreams here. And then this was, this was on my list. I want to jump to, um, and obviously I'm just going to caveat this for everybody listening. Um, you know, there is the, strike going on right now. So we're not going to, um, uh, reference shows and stuff like that. Um, because that's part of the conditions for those of you that aren't in, in the business. That's some of the conditions that the strike is imposed uh, on the profession. So, uh, we'll talk kind of elliptically about some of this stuff in Mike's career. You can check his IMDb page and you can probably figure out very easily which things we're talking about as we talk about them. But that's why I'm going to be somewhat vague as we, as we talk about very specific um, instances in your career. And I want to ask about the big movie about 9-11 that you did because you had a very interesting Instagram post about mm. exploiting method acting techniques on that. And I want to ask about that. But before I do, I just, before we leave 9-11 itself and the, the ensuing days, was there any part of you when that 9-11 concert happened? Remember the 9-11 concert? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Was there ever a, a little part of you that was like, this is everything I care about all in one space? This is all the arts, the production scale, and first responders all right here, the, the, like that's almost your whole life right there on in right. one in one performance. What I saw in that was sort of. Remember, I said I like sad music. Yeah, uh, maybe it's the catharsis involved, or it's just 
I don't know. I honestly, I can't explain why, but I remember when they took these, like when James Taylor sang, uh, fire and rain. Yeah. And it's, it's, I admit I have a dramatic side. Yeah. Um, That's why I'm at the air. The, I don't say drama is such a, it's kind of a gross word because it's been misused, but the, the depth of dual meanings when you now take this song mm. with the perspective of 9-11 um, and how it takes on new meaning, I'd love that depth in, in, in I don't know, literature and art. Yeah. In art, in yeah. art. Um, so I, and I remember when uh, Five for Fighting, John yeah. and- John Andresik, yeah. When he sang Superman- I'm like, that's exactly how I'm feeling right now. Um, brilliant song. Uh, so I did, remember I, I said I'd see things from the outside in. Like I couldn't sit there getting absorbed in it. I mean, I probably could. Did you watch it or were you there? No, I wasn't there, no. Okay, all right. Uh, in fact, I don't remember, I remember having the DVD of it, but I don't remember when I first saw it. If it, if it I don't think, I, I was probably working. I couldn't get off to huh, see it. Right. Um, Probably, I don't know when I saw it, but I remember having the DVD of it. But I, I just remember stepping out and just seeing, you know, this, it was a catharsis. And it was the first time a lot of us were able to just kind of, yeah. Um, like I, I, it wasn't, I couldn't absorb the magnitude of it. Um, I think for at least a week. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't, yeah. uh, uh, I don't think we could process of it. Not just because I, I was there, but I don't think any of us could process the magnitude of this. So I think that concert, I think also it did a number of things. It put words and music into what we're thinking and then allowed us a moment where we can all just focus on something else. There, there's a lot going on in that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but so, so I mean, correct me if I'm making too much of that concert and its impact on you. I guess my question is, what was the impact on you? Was it inspirational? Was it something that kind of gave you a bit of a landmark of like, that's pretty fucking cool. And that kind of identifies a bunch of things that move you and trigger you. Or was it kind of like, I have these thoughts in passing, but it really didn't make that much of an impression. Like it didn't change your outlook the concert itself didn't change your outlook that much or, or make you think of your own talents and what you could do with them. Like that, that ship had already sailed because of nine 11 itself, not so much the concert. Honestly, I don't know. Um, I didn't think of it. I didn't put myself in the art watching it. I really looked at it as a, uh, like I think a good song or a good piece of art can make you cry. And yeah, I can't always, even going back to like as a kid when my father died, I couldn't, I, I froze up. Yeah. I don't express my emotions very easily. Although, which is clearly untrue as I teared up a little bit talking about some of the stuff. But I think maybe I'm now in better better touch. But it allowed us to sort of break that window and let other people speak for us. Um, and I can relate and see myself in that. Um, especially when it's, I, I think it's, beautiful when a song that you know and is familiar mm-hmm. takes on new meaning mm-hmm. and 
I guess that's a, it's a form of abstract art. You yeah. see whatever you're thinking in the moment and it helps you process whatever you're feeling. And um, that's, I didn't, like I said, I didn't see myself in any of that. Um, I did see myself in our national anthem singer. And not because he got very popular. Daniel Rodriguez was, you know, cops and firemen were all the rage back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Daniel Rodriguez was singing the national anthem everywhere. And he got so big that he left an opening as the national anthem guy in our ceremonial unit. So this is probably oh three maybe? No, oh two. So about a year after, I'm like, you know, I I can sing. Maybe uh, maybe I should audition for the national anthem guy. Had you kept up your voice lessons? Not really, no. Okay. No, but I kind of You felt like it was muscle memory? Like you could- Yeah, muscle memory. And I was always singing in the car and I, I feel like I, I could still still do it. And to a degree, there's you you you, you get a foundation and you can kind of move from there. Yeah. Um so I, I started as the uh, I, I it was the first way I was able to merge the two careers. And I thought this is an interesting way to kind of, uh, not just to take advantage of what I you know, can contribute. And I also thought it was kind of fun. So I, <laughs> if those could um, see the look I'm getting right now, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of what that must've meant. Um, how did it feel to suddenly sing the anthem? And I mean, because on top of it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also kind of outing yourself as a singer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I was embarrassed by it. Were you? Yeah. That was the predominant emotion. It wasn't. No, if I was that embarrassed, I wouldn't have done it. But I was outing myself to a degree. Um, the Again, the guys, cops are so weird in that they're so supportive. They'll make fun of the shirt yeah. you're wearing. Yeah. And, you know, if, I, if your hair's out of place or you're wearing weird shoes, they'll make fun of you all day, every day. But you, something like this, they're just supportive. Um, and they still are. It's so, it's so weird. Um, but they were genuinely, for the most part, I got a little ribbing, but um, they, and, and some of it just was, it was a, it was a no, no big deal. It was nothing. Um but, uh, and so most of them just thought it was kind of cool, but we had like bagpipers and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. honor guard. And so it was just, I felt like I was no different than they were. It was kind of just all, you know, and there were so many ceremonies at the time. Sure. On the positive side, how did it feel? Did it feel ennobling? Did you feel even more fulfilled? Did you feel like, holy crap, there's this whole dormant part of myself that now is suddenly being resurrected. Yeah. It, in the beginning, it felt like that. Um, and I also thought, like, I, not to sound like a jerk, but I got a good voice, and I, yeah. which I worked hard for. It's nice to be able to do something with it. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of, hopefully it's not as egotistical as it sounds, but there was part of like, look what I can do. You didn't know I could do this, did you? Yeah. Um, but again, that's no different than the, the great bagpipers and the, the guy that plays the taps on, on the trumpet. Um, it's just, it's a, it's another side. I always love that about cops because again, I, the, 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 
we're supposed to be uniform by, by design, by definition. We're supposed to be uniform and there's no personality, but I got to see the personalities. So I love when you, you know, you, this faceless entity that stands on the corner, I know that he's the world champion foosball player. Uh, nobody knows that. Or I know that yeah. he, uh, he, he teared up watching that uh, surveillance video of the, of the guy getting robbed or something like that. And, or, um, so for me, it wasn't, it was just uh, as quirky as the rest of them. And, and they, they were cool about it. For the, for the most part, they were, they were cool about it. This thought's coming to me, so I don't know if it came to you or if you processed this at a different time, but with you starting to slowly starting to merge these two different endeavors, did you start to change how you thought about art and where its place was in society, what role it played? That hey, this is this has a lot of not just therapeutic value, but and I'll, let me couch this with some context of, of my particular thing with this. I've talked about this before on the show, but I was very bothered after nine eleven, like when I watched MTV. I remember like the next day or weeks or something. I can't, I can't remember, but sometime thereafter, I remember going, "Boy, I could really use a pick me up," and I went to MTV. And we had no national vocabulary to ennoble us in this moment. I remember they played John Cougar Mellencamp's Pink Houses, which is a song I love, has nothing to do really with America or going, go us, or hey, stiff upper lip, or go get them. They played, you know, uh, Born in the, in the USA. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, but that's actually an anti-war, you know, song. Um, they played... Um, Live, who, a band I absolutely fucking love. They played their song "Overcome." I remember but, that. Yeah. But then it's like, but that's "Overcome." That's a defeatist song. That's not like <laughs> uh, "Go Get Them." Like, and I was, and I don't need like you know Brett Michaels jumping off an amp and and doing that. Like, I don't need to be some aggro like "Ah, Go America." But it was like we have no vocabulary. We've been so ensconced in Vietnam era counterculture, anti-authoritarian stuff that there's no vocabulary. For us, when we've been properly attacked, to respond culturally and go, this is who the fuck we are. Mm. And it's one of those reasons I think so many people glom onto Viking culture Mm. and Lord of the Rings. And like I think even to one of my favorite movies of all time, Zulu. When the British are surrounded by the Zulus and the Zulus are doing like their horrifying war cry and the Brits are getting scared and they say to the Welshmen, sing, sing, damn you. And it's uh-huh. like, and it's like they found their, and it's these, to, to my American ears, it's like these corny British hymns, but it's their backbone, it's their culture and they're standing behind it and that's what fires them up to fuel off the attack. And I was like, we don't have that. I mean, we do somewhere in our catalog, but I was like, well, where the fuck is it? I don't know where it is. And to me, I mean, I now look at this with the benefit of hindsight and go, well, I'd like to fucking create some. I'd like to fucking have some. We should have something in our cultural arsenal to go, this is who the fuck we are. And that's, I think, why so many people love hip hop. Because it's unabashedly, this is who the fuck I am. Now, sometimes it's all about me, whoever the rapper is, as opposed to us as a community or as a, a civilization or a country. But I think we all respond to that. We all want our war cry. We all want our ennobling anthem. I say this to somebody that sang a song, anthem, right, um, from chess. 
not like you wrote it, but still, <laughs> but I mean, it's still, I mean, you, you, and, and admittedly you talked about Superman and John and song and all that, which also was on your first album. Right. Yeah. Um, it looked to, so I'm saying that I'm putting my thumb on the scale of where, why I'm asking this question. Okay. It seems like there was a part of you that was triggering and, and cueing to, Hey, we should have some anthemic totemic, ennobling songs cultural that we can stand behind that, that is truly for the Sentinels for the, you know, for you know, like, there's something that's, this is who we are at our best and I can sing to that and I can identify that and I can give voice to that. Right. Am I making too much of this or is that, is any part of that, what you was going through your mind or something that you were kind of finding for yourself? I was once in a while I'll feel creative like we all, that impulse we all get and I feel like I want to create art if only for the therapeutic angles of it um and I did that I and I'm not a songwriter but I wrote two songs on the first album one of which I don't think I mentioned it's called Waiting and it was just about the period in the days after 9/11 you listen to it you won't know what it's about but mm-hmm. um it's about the missing posters yeah. up on the walls and just this period where there was actually some hope, like they're just yeah. buried right yeah. under that rock. So that waiting is about that period. Um, so I, not to, I can't disagree with that, but I think, like I said earlier, I loved finding dual meaning in songs that already exist. And even the born in the USA, it's not intended to, it's intended right. to be an anti-war song, but somebody I think, kind of twist those lyrics into yeah. something that makes sense for them. I mean, even like the Billy Joel song he sang at the concert. That's the night the lights went out on Broadway. Yeah. Miami. Sir. We all we all looked at the New York skyline, but that song's about Miami. But I'm going to make it into whatever I want in this yeah. moment. Yeah. Or I'll create it. So I I think there's a little both going on. Because I only, and I can only see it through the perspective of my own eyes, but I was compelled to make and find catharsis in what others have made. It seems like, I mean, again, I'm not trying to make too much of it. It it does seem like that's a theme though in your work. Conscious or otherwise, but it, it does seem like there has been like, you are very, Forward isn't the right word. It's I don't mean to make it sound that aggressive, but you're you're very forthright and unabashed in who you are, and therefore what deserves to have some degree of poetry stated about it. And that's essentially what it is, right? I mean, yeah. You're 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 up trying to. You, there's a part of I think all of us that wants to be poet laureate to some of these experiences. And some of these lifestyles. And I feel like that's a lot of what you've done is try to give voice to that because there wasn't a cohesive, might be a song here or a song there, but it wasn't a cohesive sense no. of like, who the fuck are these guys and why yeah. is this important, right? And I feel like both albums have that going on. But you tell me I'm wrong. I mean, I'm not trying no, to make I, too much I, of it. I, no, I don't think you're wrong at all. It was... Some of it are just songs I like, but there, 
they're they're pulled and we'll get into it i'm sure but sentinels took me 10 years and for a number of reasons but one of them was because you know i'd go six months without really looking for a song and then something in my life would happen and i'm like now i have a song for the album i have the next song is coming from wow. this from that so i do i i i am i often i feel like i step in and out of myself so often and that seems incongruent to the question but like it does this is really a good therapy session but um <laughs> like i said i and to a to a fault and i don't like it in myself but i i do detach a lot and i see things almost as if you know like a director takes his fingers and makes the frame i see the world sometimes through that um you reminded me of something earlier and if you had asked, you know, how the cops thought of me when I first got there. Yeah. And we were, I remember all of us being in the lounge at lunch and everybody was kind of just talking. And uh, I was describing, I'm like, God, there's just Volkswagen commercial now. And it's it's to, uh, I don't think they knew the song, but it's, it's to Nick Drake's song, Pink Moon. And it's just these kids in a Volkswagen that show up to a really loud party and they all look at each other. Um, and they decide just to continue driving and skip the party. And I, I think, remember that. I yeah. think it's just a beautiful commercial. And I, uh, between the music and then the, the sentiment, and I was describing this to the guys and they all looked at me. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what happens next? Were there explosions? <laughs> um, and it was just like, and it was just, and I, I was just sort of like, and it was just a really beautiful commercial. <laughs> But they, nobody got what I was saying. They threw a tampon at you and were like, all right, that's <laughs> yeah. enough of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. go ahead. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, I'm different in many <laughs> yeah. ways. But they weren't, no one, they were just like, okay, Mike's a little weird. But but that's kind of it though, right? That's the point. To be an artist in the profession of arms, it's a weird thing. Yeah. Because there is going to be a part of you that also, you, you can't be that if you're always in it. There are, are going to have to be moments that you pull out and look around, take stock, make mental notes get inspired and then go shit people should know about this whatever it is that you're capturing you know i think that's um and what's funny about it funny's probably an inadequate word but what's unique about that is that everyone even the most jockey of the most jock wants that hmm. we all want to be the subject of the bards but you need a bard, right? You know, and it's and it, and you need those people that have that artistic flair that can step outside and look. And I guess it's just towards what end is that bard doing their work? And yeah. I wonder, you know, I mean, what's I mean, this is not to sound all meta or sound self congratulatory, but I think that's also what's beautiful about veterans in the arts in general is that I think a lot of times the arts do get insular and they do get incestuous. Yes. It does become a very closed loop. Oh, and it's God, like, yeah. motherfucker, like there's all these stories out here, dude. And from the profession of arms over the last 20 years, that's a pretty fucking robust ecosystem to mine stories and things worth paying homage to. And yes. but you need people that can actually walk that walk, talk that talk and appreciate the nuance of those experiences and therefore communicate them in a way that others will appreciate and understand. Right. More than right. And it, it, it and it actually connects a lot of what we were talking about earlier. We've seen things from the inside 
that the writers of a the yeah. latest cop show won't ever see. And uh, why not turn to this resource to to share these this, yeah. this insight? Yeah, you know the good and the bad. Um, I often I remember at nine eleven I was feeling guilty because I would look up. Actually, it's it's gross the way I, I this perspective. I'm like, look at these lights and the smoke. Like this is a Steven Spielberg production. Wow, yeah. And I remember feeling dirty thinking that. It is funny though. When it happened, it felt like a movie. Yeah. It really did. It was like we're so numb to it because we're used to big blockbusters. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. I mean, that's not an unnatural thought. I think in this day and age. I mean. This is 23 is obviously different than 2001, but still, it was, yeah. you know, we knew enough. It's funny you talked about the cell phone on 9-11. I just got to reference this, but I, I remember when I was running from the buildings when the first one cracked, I think. No, it was when they, I don't know if you ever heard of this because you were uptown at, uh, at that point, but at, when I was staying there on 71 Thomas Street, there was a cry that went up among the crowd and, you know, it was hundreds of thousands of people packed into that, you know, suddenly the streets felt claustrophobic, but not yet because we didn't feel the danger, but somewhere the cry went up, they're pulling the plane out. And that's what triggered the panic, at least around us. Sure. Sure. And then we all turned and ran. Oh wow. Because, but they kept going, they're pulling the plane out. They're pulling the plane. I was like, I don't see anybody pulling it, but okay. I don't know. I never, to this day, I've never heard anybody talk about that or where that came from or why somebody thought that. But, but then that's, that was my first time ever in a mass panic Yeah, where I was like, holy shit. Now hundreds of thousands of people are all moving as one body. But to your point about the cell phone or just your relating the thing about the cell phone, that was when there was a thunderclap. And it was all the electronics that hit the ground. And I, I've talked about this on the show, so I won't, I, for those that listen regularly, I won't bore you with it again. But, but for me, I was like, my thought still, my head was still in pre 9-11 mode. Yeah. I was like, when did we suddenly get all these electronics? I had a little beeper, but I was like, but all these, they, it, like all is one, like everything dropped. And it was just a, a one big cacophonous, clap. Right. And I start as I started running, I started scooping up phones because I was like, well, they belong to people. These are people's like, if somebody dropped their phone, wouldn't you pick up their phone? Yeah. And then at some point I remember going, wait, I, I think I'm really supposed to be running though. Like no shit, like actually run, stop picking up the fucking phones. Yeah. And that was my one good deed that day is I scooped up like three or four phones and the next week, I walked up to Radio Shack or something on 86th and Lex, and there was a thing where you could turn in, Oh, for, I think for 9-11, I think it was because of 9-11, they, if I remember right, they were like, you can turn in stuff and we'll hunt down the owners or something, and the people got their phones back. Wow, that's And crazy. I was like, oh, hey, I saved four people's phones. But it was like, but it, that mo- I just remember that moment of scooping up phones going, at what point do I stop scooping up phones and start focusing on the fact that I'm literally in the shadow of this building that I think a plane is coming out of. It wasn't. And in fact, so, they just moved us up a couple blocks and then set up a new barrier. And then eventually we stayed there until the building cracked. Then we rushed up ugh. to Canal Street. We went from White Street to Canal Street. And then Canal is where we stayed until both buildings came down. And it was probably manned by Midtown North guys because it was, it was, it was, the cops were all along that barrier. And that's when, after the second building came down, 
you know, everybody, uh, there was a construction crew working on Canal Street, which really isn't that dissimilar from Canal Street to 2023. Exactly. Um, but there was a construction crew there and they all started yelling, union, union. And they're like, everyone with a union card, let's go, oh. we're going in. And the cops were like, no, you're not. Don't no, go anywhere yeah. near there. And it was like, and it didn't become a fight, but it was definitely like, it, in fact, it was, it was a very surreal fight because the union guys were like sobbing and crying, going, let us in. The cops were sobbing and crying, going, you can't go in. Wow. And there, it was almost like a fight of hugs. It was like, I love you too much. I'm not going to let the, I, we got to go get these guys. No, I love you too much. You can't go. It was so weird. That's crazy. That's right? amazing. Yeah. It was so bizarre. And but to that at that point, this is trivia. Just two nine eleven veterans talking about it. But at that point, I I still thought it was a bad pilot. I didn't know. What yeah, the f- me too. The first one, I, I, even the second, even I the think. second one though. I I like at the moment when the buildings came down, I just was like, this is an Im- immensely tragic event of one fucking retarded pilot. Like, how do you not know those buildings are there? I was mystified. I was like, what yeah. the fuck? And it was only walking home. Hmm. That like I remember I was on Green Street. I was coming up through Soho. I was going to have to walk the length of, and everybody was like a refugee crisis. It was like a mass migration. Like everybody was on the sidewalks. The streets were all clear, and but everybody was massed on the sidewalks, walking back uptown or wherever. And there's no subways, and everybody's walking. And there were all these cars parked in Soho with the doors open and the radios were on. So as I walked past, I'd hear little snippets and all this. And I just was focused on walking, walking, walking. Finally, I stopped and listened for a second. And they were going, oh, the Pentagon. And I'm like, oh, my God. At the Pentagon. I'm like, why would, would you ever talk about national news when right. the World Trade Center just came down? This should be the only story people are talking about. Why the fuck does anybody care Ugh. about what's happening at the Pentagon? And then I kept walking. And Ugh. then finally, then I heard something else. And, then I was, and finally, by the time I was about to leave Soho on Green Street, I think I stopped this car. And then I was like. Wait, what the fuck just happened? Wait, huh? And that's when like it all clicked. And then I was like, "Holy shit, we're at war! This is war, man! This is, like this is it." <laughs> I'm know? only laughing because I was exactly like you. I remember like what's going on at air traffic control. I thought this is on them. And then I was on the phone with my friend from the unit, and he's <laughs> he's had to explain it to me. He's like, "No, no, this is this is intentional." And he said, wow. "Bro, this can start a war." Wow. So I that he caught me up because he was a little more savvy than I was. Yeah. And I I guess because we were watching at home, I don't know if I we must have known about the others, but but I remember funny he, we we both thought this could start a war. I did. What did you think? What was your takeaway, professionally and emotionally afterwards? I mean, did you were you pissed? Were you sad? What, what was your What was your? How did yeah. you feel? To be honest, it's uh, I didn't feel much of anything. Hmm. I didn't, and I think that's what led to a lot of issues later. I remember just completely shutting down. I didn't feel anger. Wow. I didn't feel anything. Um. Again, I didn't. I don't remember crying. Um. I, I, yeah, I think and. It's not a good thing to do because all of those emotions went somewhere. And I think it was probably five years later they came out. But In what way? You, In what way did they come out? Oh, uh, it. I was uh, severely depressed. And I, I think 
all the things that, and I wonder if it was happening to all of us, and I think it was, all of the things that I swallowed, I, I think of it like bubbles in a beer glass or something that, you know, everything eventually will rise to the yeah. surface. And and I completely shut down. And I, it wasn't by design. I didn't say to myself, I need to do my job, so I need to, to shut down. But um, if, if that was a, a one... It was because I remember where I was. I, I had been promoted to sergeant, and I was working in transit. And it didn't help that I was working underground on midnights. Oh wow! But I got severe depression, and and I started drinking really heavily, and it, it was a terrible combination. And a lot of those feelings I, I I had buried started to come up, and I remember a lot of the imagery that I kept seeing i i did started to replay in my head a lot of the stuff that i saw just started all coming back and i think it with the depression was bringing out the darker side of me and then th- you throw uh, alcohol into the mix and it it got it got really bad it was it was you know i i I wasn't suicidal per se, but I wanted everything to stop. So I remember I was a sergeant in transit and as a sergeant, you got the car. So you're, you're driving around and I was a, uh, a task force. So we had almost all of Manhattan. I wanted to stay in Manhattan. So that's why I went to transit. And uh, I needed everything just to stop. I needed a break from it all. So I remember if, if like a dangerous job came over the radio, I would say, no, tell the unit to disregard, I'll handle and I was alone in the car. So I was driving around. And this was a lot of self-unconscious. Uh, I didn't really, I wasn't saying I'm on a suicide mission or something like that. But the depression was just so bad, I needed a break. So I was actually looking, in hindsight I see this, but I was probably looking to get hurt. Just to, I wasn't looking to die. I was just looking to get hurt. To get oh, to get out of it all, so that what you'd go on leave or something for medical yeah. reasons, yeah, yeah, without I, loss of face or anything like that. Exactly, exactly. Um, so i I was picking up, and I wasn't like I said, I didn't expect to die at these jobs, but I'm like, I'll handle this. Or, you know, maybe I was. I don't know, but uh, I know we jumped. This is oh uh, one to. I always say it was about five years later, but I'm trying to think when it when it really did surface. I got promoted in 03, and not, not that it matters, but it was it was several years later. But a, a, a darkness totally took over. It was it was really bad. It was it was you know, and I, again, I was completely single. Complete, you know, when you're single, you spend so much time in your own head. Yeah, and um, especially on midnights, and I'd go days without seeing the sun, and I think. All the stuff that I swallowed on 9-11 started to come up. And I, I yeah, I, I, it, 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 it got pretty dark and I wanted to take myself out. So I do remember uh, calling, uh, the NYPD has like a third party where, like if you go to the job, and I don't know if this is true or not, but if you you tell your boss, look, I'm struggling with depression, right? they're like, great, give me your guns and you're now modified and sure. you're, you're on the desk. Sure. But the NYPD is great. They have a, a disinterested third party organization called PAPA, P O P P A, Police Officers 
providing peer assistance. And I called them up and I was like, this is what's going on. And I'm just thinking I could use a, maybe a little therapy. Um, and they listened to it and they were like, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. No problem. So, uh, they gave me, they stopped the clock. They were, they were, it was when I said, you know, look, I'm, I'm kind of looking to crash the car or I'm looking to uh, wow. respond to a, a very dangerous job by myself, hoping that, uh, wow. you know, I can go out with a, a little, little valiancy, but val valor, but uh, they were like, yeah, why don't you come with us? So what did that mean when they say come with us? Did they <laughs> take you to a facility or what do they do? No, they, Actually, I did. I, I did. I did spend overnight. They just wanted to make sure, like, what level is this guy? Yeah, is he sure. really far gone? And I remember that it's when I say it's peer officers. They have peer counselors who work in the NYPD and they volunteer and they man the clock. And so this guy came out. We met at Starbucks, and uh, I told him all the things that's that are, that's going on. And and uh, he he's making phone calls, and they uh, they call it Blue Line, which means like we're gonna we're going to call the NYPD and tell them you're out sick. We don't have to tell them why you can tell them whatever you want. You're, you're friends, but you're not going to work tonight. Um, I called up and it's like my appendix just burst. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. Um, and they were like, okay. So <laughs> it was three or four months of very deep therapy. Were um, you out off the line? Off, were you? Uh, yeah. The next day I'm wearing. So it had to be, you had to come up with the appendix first because it needed to be something big enough to justify being exactly. out for a while. Okay. Yeah. They gotcha. told me you're probably going to be out for three or four months. Oh, wow. Holy um, shit. It's actually a great program. That is a great program. Yeah. Yeah. I was really thankful to them. And, uh, and also I remember when, when the guy came, he's like, let's just, you know, let's go back to your apartment. And there were like beer bottles everywhere. Um, and I put, I was in such good shape from the police academy and I was turning 30 on 9-11. So I'm going to be in great shape. And then over the next few years, I put on like probably 30 pounds, drinking really heavily. And all of that just plays off itself. And yeah. then throw in the midnights and the depression. And it was a terrible, terrible period. But I'm so grateful to them. They, again, I had group therapy with other cops who were in a similar situation. Um they uh, set me up with a great uh, therapist three times a week with him. And I was, I was really kept busy. It wasn't like I'm now home with the life of Riley. Right, right. It was every intention was to get better, get to the gym. I was able to lose some weight, stop drinking. So it was, it was a definitely a period to, to rebuild and, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, so that was, and then actually I went back and uh, thankfully got out of transit. It just didn't suit me. I was, um, again, I wanted to stay in Manhattan, but they make you leave the borough otherwise. So I, I went to a different bureau because um, I didn't want to, I want to stay in Manhattan. Uh, and then uh, a friend of mine got me a position in the detective bureau. So I was now above ground and, and doing some things that I like. So that, that was, it's all coming together. That was oh, six or oh, seven. Wow. So you were a detective for most of your career. Yeah. More wow. than half. Yeah. So let's back up. So when when you were going on the, I gotta just gotta ask when you were going on those calls yeah. by yourself. Yeah, how'd that work out? I mean, <laughs> my God! I mean, considering what you were doing, I mean, did it get hairy? Did it? Or it didn't, unfortunately. 
Wow, yeah, really? I, I lucked. There's somebody. I, I guess I have a guardian angel over yeah. my shoulder. But uh, um, I mean, did you actually go in and like you're trying to you're trying to stumble into danger, and you actually cleverly and you know wisely and trickily solve the whole thing and it's like you're super cop and you're like god i was trying to mess well, up i know you never know what when it comes over the radio you don't know what degree and also right. it's weird for a transit sergeant to be taking a job from the pre the local precinct right but i would come over and say look i'm right there so why don't i take it there they can stand down and it, it, it was very unorthodox um, but I, again, I had a guardian angel on my shoulder. So I, I think I was going to domestics, which I had no business going to Wow, things like that. Um, and there weren't, there weren't a few, I wasn't doing this nightly. There's probably three or four. Okay. So I was, I was lucky. Did they get physical or did you no. mitigate? Wow. No, I wow. just went yeah. hearing the type of job that it was over the radio. And if it, and if it was really heavy, they'd send backup units anyway. So it was, um, it was it was actually it was a calculated risk. It yeah. was a calculated risk. Okay. Um you know, and I wasn't looking to start anything or I just I'm like I I just I can't even articulate what it was, but I remember telling the therapist like I needed to stop the clock. I just needed this to end. Um I I, I and again, but I say it wasn't suicidal. I don't think it came to the, that surface. Maybe I was. I don't know. But I remember wanting to crash the car. But I thought maybe that would just, you know, be the injury I needed to. Wow. For, to uh, but I, I needed to stop because it was going very fast downhill. When you got moved to Detective Bureau, did that ever resurrect? Did any depression ever come back? It did, uh, but not to that degree. Okay. What triggered it? Um, probably, you know, you would actually, now looking back, what triggered it was uh, I got dental work and they gave me a prescription for something uh. really heavy. Uh, I Dor, uh, Percocet, one of the, one of their narcotics. Yeah, and it gave me. Jesus. They gave me a prescription afterward. I get a root canal or something. Wow. Um, but it gave me such a low afterward, and I couldn't shake it. Fuck. Yeah, and Fuck. I would never, and I, I was never a, a into pill. I did beer, if anything. I was never into right into, into right pills or anything, but. It was this prescription. I, it started with a D. I forget what the pill was, but it uh, it gave me such a, a low afterward. And he, they gave me a really like two weeks supply. And then when I was done, I was just like in this cloud of darkness. And then when I went back, it wasn't as severe. I just went back into counseling right, and group right. therapy and things like that. And um, but it it uh, it was it was it was bad, but not as bad. Um, I'll, I'll ask a very targeted question that maybe just doesn't apply here throughout the darkness. Was anything about your artistry able to help? Were you still able to do the national anthem? Was, was, did that even play a role? Was it like, was there any flicker of light? Did it give you any sort of oasis away from the day to day? Yeah. 
And it's funny, and it, when it happens, you have no, it's no perspective. But looking back, especially as I'm thinking out this timeline, I really found the thera- therapeutic power of music, and I really dug into that. And it's funny, it goes back into like, I play these other roles and I can, I can be someone else. But I think also with music, I can, I can use that as a form of therapy and, and get rid of some of this bottled up emotion. Um, and I really, I found that that really helped. Um, so I was, I was putting together, actually I started recording and I started putting together some, uh, that was where the kind of the, the first album came, it came about. from that. It came from the dark period. Yeah, it did because that I I was finished. That was 2011. So I, looking back, it, it it I don't know if it took that long. Like the the recent one, like I said, took 10 years. But then that was maybe three or four years. So it was it was during that period. If the first one was yeah, because I remember I wrote that song "Waiting" and I was still fresh. The 9/11 was uh, was wow. still fresh in my mind, and um, so yeah, I think I think I turned to music more than anything. And even when I was doing the national anthem, it was, it was at, you know, funerals and memorials and it was still in those years. So my national anthem was more of a ballad than an anthem. You know, I did, I did it very kind of somberly. And, uh, I remember being told, Mike, it's, it's an anthem. (laughs) Yeah. You know, wrap it up a little. Yeah. 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 Cause I, it was still, everything was just very, everything was just somber. What was your beat as a detective? What, what what kind of cases were you handling? What'd you get moved to? Oh, I'm not I'm not proud. Uh, it was it got very cushy after that because a guy that I went to the academy with, he was helping me through that period. He's like, "Look, if you want to get to the detective bureau, you can come with me. I do internal investigations." So I started with them in the we called the chief of detectives investigations unit, and it wasn't like internal affairs, which looks at oh okay. Well, it was a lower level. We looked at uh, internal violations. You broke the NYPD rules, whereas internal affairs looks at you committed Law. a crime. Yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So uh, we would go and make sure they're not wearing white socks with their uniforms. Or uh, Oh, they must have fucking hated they, you. I was – see, I, I didn't want to be doing it, so <laughs> I was pretty cool. Like I, if I had to you know, in, in, uh, inspect the squad, I would call up and say – just want to make sure somebody's there right now. So I wouldn't go in and want to surprise them. Yeah. I'll just say, I just want to make sure you're there. And I even say, are you in the midst of anything big right now? Okay. So that way they'd get their memo books gotcha. up to date. And this, um, I, I was pretty fair minded again, cause it wasn't something I ever wanted to do. Yeah. But, um, it was a branch of the chief of detectives office and they started looking at my reports going, wow, this guy can kind of put words together, which is rare in the NYPD. He can string together words to form a sentence. Hmm. Um, so I never did time in the squad. They they uh, brought me into the, the – I left inspections and they brought me into the chief of detective's office proper. So I started doing uh, – we call it the operations coordinator. So sort of with him, you know, with him over my shoulder – I would uh, coordinate any internal inve- internal communications. Um, You're almost like chief of staff for him. Yeah, almost. actually, it really was it. At, at that point, the detective bureau it was big, but it wasn't as big as it became because it, it merged with 
Organized Crime Control Bureau, which had, oh wow, uh, okay. you know, uh, the organized crime and, and yeah. the narcotics and things like that. So the detective bureau at the time was just numbered the, the precinct squads, but it, we merged later, and it got much bigger. So it it, it um, got a lot harder, but. Back then, it was I was doing his mail, his correspondence, and he. They used to joke, "Oh, a piece of paper came in. Give it to Mike. You know, anything. We're gonna we're gonna solve crimes. You can oh, fuck. answer this letter from the public yeah, 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 and, yeah. and get the chief to sign it. Um, it. It definitely. And I was there for thirteen years. Wow. So it, a lot of it was most of my career. Wow. Yeah. Did it satisfy you? Did it fulfill you? It did. Why? It's well. It's it's felt. It's sort of like the grandparents watching the kids. Like I get to see do the fun stuff, but then when they start crying and puking, I get to give them back. Whereas I got to see everything that was going on throughout the city, um, but without having to do the dirty work, without having uh, to wrap around the clock and and. Uh. And go to the autopsy in the morning. And uh, so we would cultivate the information that was happening throughout the squads and give it to the chief. So he was only aware of the important things. Um, I got to see everything as it was happening in real time. All the, the big stuff, the little stuff. It was, I got the chief of detectives perspective while being a sergeant. Gotcha. It was, and it was as nine to five as mm. a detective sergeant can be. So it was, I, I didn't really, uh, I didn't, I didn't pay my dues. Do you feel that way? To a degree. Yeah. Cause most, the path into the detective bureau is generally a police officer who does a great job and they bring him into the squad and then after a year and a half, they give him his gold detective shield. Um, whereas a sergeant takes a test. It's just police officer, a written test to sergeant. Right. And then I just happen to laterally transfer in to the detective bureau. So I never really uh, paid my dues and became a detective. I went right to a detective supervisor. Is there extra schooling they give a detective? Do you go oh, through yeah. an extra course? Tons. Okay. And I and I got a lot of that too. I okay. went to the homicide courses and the criminal okay. investigations course. Um, they get a lot of well, it's, it's I guess any specialized units within the NYPD, you got specific training, and, and okay. but they got a lot of good stuff. In fact, the homicide course is is renowned, uh, and mm. it's about three weeks, and it was just amazing. Really? Yeah. So Why? I got to do things like that. Why was it amazing? They bring in. Um, speakers. Well, you get really down and dirty with cases, but they'll bring in the, the, the original detectives or the um, FBI profilers or the the medical examiner. Mm. Um, I mean, you walk away with a bleak output on, outlook on life. Right, right, right. But it's just the things you get to see. Um, it, it was it was pretty horrible, but just just amazing. They bring in people from all over the country to take this course, um, and just different and i was looking at it, i'm like god if i was a if i was a screenwriter i'm like there's some good stuff yes here. yeah there's some really good stuff it's good privileged information that like you oh. have to have been there to hear have heard it yeah that's right i yes that makes a ton of sense yeah um i don't want to ignore what was going on with you acting wise but you know we oh, started yeah. to talk about 
the big movie you did. And that was really your first big movie, wasn't it? The one about 9-11? It, it was to? where I made the transition. I stopped doing, I was- You weren't extra anymore. Yeah, I was an extra. I wanted to get my SAG card. And actually, no, I had a couple speaking roles before that. Did you get your SAG card before that? Yes. Okay. Um, some writers of a cop show, and I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I mentioned the name of that project yeah, earlier. A, yeah, well. I forgot. But um, while I was still at Midtown North, some writers of a cop show came and did a ride along with us. Okay. And um, I had already been doing background work on their show. Which is why they're like, go, go ride with Mike because you got a lot to oh, talk so about. They do that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, one of the the executives at the precinct said, "Go, go ride with Mike." Um, so when we were done, and they were, and actually they 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 used a lot of what we were doing at the time. Uh, when when they were done with the ride along, I got a call from casting saying that we have a part you'd like we'd like you to play. It was one line. But it got me my SAG card. So they, they thanked me with that. They thanked you with that. That's awesome. Yeah. And the, the uniform's paying off, right? Kind of the, the Machiavellian plan is starting to take form <laughs> where it's like, hey, look at this. Yeah. There's a marriage here between these two. It really was. Yeah. And, you know, Machiavellian or otherwise, I don't know if it was, but it was just, it was. It was a, no. I, I, yeah. I'm totally joking. No, but it yeah, it yeah. might have been. And, and I, I hope I don't come off as like. So self-serving. You know, but, you don't come off as devious and mustache twirling oh. over it, but it's, <laughs> it is, fun, but, but, it, but it, cause I think it's totally understandable. It's like, why wouldn't you merge your passions and your career paths and the things you've invested in and the things you care about? Um, so when you did though, now start to move to the movie and this is a big studio movie. Yeah. You were selected with other not just NYPD veterans, but 9-11 veterans, right? Isn't that what they asked right. for? When they, they wanted to put together a core group of police officers, it was the story of a Port Authority cop, two Port Authority cops who get buried in, in the rubble, and this is their story. And I remember them calling me saying, we, we want to make this as authentic as possible, so we want to use only 9-11 responders. So even though we we're all playing cops, we had firemen mixed in there, we okay. had gotcha. different agencies – um, and I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, that, that sounds cool, I guess. Yeah. I didn't know what to think of it. Um, and again, it, it was a high profile, uh, movie with, uh, you know, with a big director and, and the original title and actually, cause I'm like, I'm saying the name of, a of the project, the original title was September. And I thought that's, that's subtle. And I, I liked, it was done with, this is not a disaster movie. I like, that's that's done with some grace. And I, I'm like, okay. Um, and they said, you know, you'll probably start out as background and, and we're going to, we'll give you all upgrades because this is shooting in California and, and New York. Okay. I'm like, this sounds okay. Let's do it. Did you, were you excited because it was an overlap between your acting and police work? Or was were, was there a part of you that was like, hey, big studio movie, this might actually be really good for my career, just standalone, and then, oh, the fact that it's a cop as well, oh, and it's 9-11, is just kind of gravy. You know, I because it was presented as, it, so tastefully, mm. I thought... I'm like uh, this is this is good. We can help tell the stories, and and this is a her- okay. this is a story, a heroic story. Um, 
and I and I I did think maybe there's some real acting involved here, and and uh, um, you know I always liked to say that I'm not just a an actor who's a cop. You know, I studied really deeply for years and my my degree and I spent every yeah. day for years learning the craft of acting. So I'd I'd like to, you know, actually bring something to the table more than a, a uniform or the, the fact that I yeah. can I can hold a gun or <laughs> right. some, stuff like that. So right, right, right. So I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I thought this was good. I, I was a little hesitant because let's cut that too. Cut that part? Yeah. You mean cut what you were about to say? Or like not cut get what I was about here? to say. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Yep. Yeah. All right. We'll we'll cut we'll, we'll cut right there. Stop me if this is what if this question would lead you to what you were about to say. Um, how much do you want to say about the emotionally exploitive? That's fine. Exploitative part. So so talk about the direction that you were given. What were you told was going to ha- was supposed to happen? What direction were you given? to accomplish the, the, some of the, those scenes and how did that play out then for you as the actor? We were never given a script. So we didn't know until we arrived oh. what was going to happen on any given day. And I had a, a fair overview of the story and they were actually using the two uh, officers who were trapped in the rubble were also appearing in the film and they were, they were tech wow. advisors okay. and, one was a member of the uh, of, of the squad of police officers with us, so I, I thought we're in really good hands. It's going to gotcha. be done with integrity, and, gotcha. and it was. But there were times, a lot of the scene. I really wish I were given a bit of a heads up because this was in and around the time where I was I was struggling with depression. So perhaps That's what it I was, was wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I went four days without sleep. Because we were, we were, I was working midnight shooting this during the day. Um, interestingly, I was the transit station was in the Port Authority, so I would go downstairs and work for eight plus hours. Then I would go up and back and forth for four days until I literally collapsed in a chair and I, I just couldn't couldn't do it anymore. So I think a lot of that fed into the depression. But the scenes we were doing. Where they would say, "Okay, in this scene, we're watching the. You're all in the in the precinct, and we're watching on TV. You're watching the planes hit. So for probably ten to fifteen takes, we watched the the the, the planes hitting. They actually put the footage. They on. did okay. because they were shooting over our shoulders as gotcha. well. So okay. Um, Was it multi cameras? Did they have many cameras going at once? Uh, not at once. Okay. Usually, you'll do. You they may throw in a second camera, but traditionally. Right. They, they want one right. camera going at a sure. time. But um, I didn't know if they were going all Michael Bay and trying to do a bunch of different cameras all at once and trying to capture that. There might have been yeah. a couple. Sometimes they'll throw two, but they did, even when the cameras were on us, mm. they showed us the, the planes hitting. Okay. So I didn't know at the time. I'm like, this is this a little exploitative is this are they they know we're first responders they know we were there um and they probably thought they were helping right because maybe hey these guys aren't necessarily professional actors right or not they don't consider you professional actors at all and they're like we're going to help them out and give them the raw material so we get really good reactions and they give good performances maybe right? yeah i i don't know what their intentions were um but i started to think that this feels a little dirty 
Um, and then like, it wasn't me, but they, they covered, they had a scene where all the guys were coming back from ground zero. So half of us, they covered in dust. Um, luckily it wasn't me, but they showed those scenes coming back and some of us presumably didn't come back. Um, there was also a scene and we shot this in LA. They show us getting off the bus and we, we didn't, uh, someone came up and showed us a video on a, on a laptop. He said, this is what you're looking at. And it was people jumping. Okay. Um, so, uh, so they didn't show it to you during the scene. They showed it to you before. before. And, okay. and we were just looking up at empty sky. Gotcha. But, um, they, they, every time we broke, they showed us the, the, what we're looking at and they showed us a visual and, you know, you're doing this to the guy that was there yeah, that was yeah, buried yeah. in rubble. He's there with me. I know the guy next to me. We worked at Midtown North together. I know where he was that day. And and I started, I I, I don't think I could articulate. I still, I was, cap, I was, I, I got a little wrapped up in like the coolness of it. And, and in fact, the director gave me a huge compliment. He, he looked, he pulled three of us and he goes, you guys are from New York, right? Um, and he goes, he's that, that was really good. And I'm like, well, <laughs> sorry, but there's a reason it's really good. But I was, I was like, so good. Oh, the director just gave me this huge compliment. Right. right. Um, it wasn't until now, years later, I'm a little more established. I'm a little older and wiser. I'm not appeasing people just for the sake of getting a breakthrough job. Yeah that I can look back and even articulate publicly as I did on a, in an Instagram post like that, that was emotional exploitation and they, they shouldn't have done it. So I can see a young Chris Meyer doing that as a director before I entered the military, because you're going, yeah, the verisimilitude, the reality of it, you got the actual guys, blah, blah, blah. I can see it being well-intentioned artistry. Yeah run amok. What do you think the takeaway is though? What would you caution people to do if they're doing that again? Do you think the moral of the story is, dude, don't use the actual fucking guys. Put actors in there because you don't, just because somebody's playing a butcher doesn't mean you have to cast a butcher. Right. Like they're actors, show them that. And you can have people as advisors. You can have people say, Hey, on the day, this is what I was feeling. They can sit down and do a three hour conversation like this. Right. There's a lot of things you can do without subjecting the guys that were there to it. Right. Is that the moral or do you think it's how you direct it? And because I'm just trying to think as the director, big budget studio behind me, all the pressures that that entails, you're trying to get awesome performances all in service of an ostensibly good story. Yeah, it was. So you're going, okay, well then I want some, I want this, acute degree of emotional truth. Like, how do you get that then? What do you think? If you're the director, what do you do? How do you direct that then? Honestly, it's, it's a very, very fine line, even as an actor's point of view. Be, it all depends on also the actor. Where does he draw it from? Because, mm -hmm. you know, I recently did uh, um, a show where I had to cry. Mm -hmm. And I purposely drew from my own life mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I needed to, I needed it to be real. I wanted to draw from my own experience. So whether an actor's method is 
getting so enwrapped in, in entrenched in this character that you believe what he believes. Mm-hmm. And that's possible. You could, that could be your, mm-hmm. your, sure. your method. Sure. I, um, actually there was the, when I, it was a, a show about a fire that took place in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And my wife in the scene was wrapped up in bandages mm-hmm. and I had to cry at her bedside. So I pictured my stepdaughter mm-hmm. and it worked. I, all the tears came. So it, 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 I think a lot depends on where you are in, in your emotional stability. Cause I was not in a good place. And I think even looking back, it was just the wrong time for me. If I was a stronger person, uh. I would have been fine with it. I could have stepped in and out of it with no problem. That one really stuck with me. And I, I just, you're right. It could have been approached with integrity or with good intentions, uh, but was but might have been poorly executed. I, as the director, probably would have left it up to the actor to decide. I would have, I would have hired an actor who could go there however he chooses but with with the emotional stamina to step away from it when it when it was over. Yep. yep. Um, I, I'm gonna name drop here, and, I, and I, I hate doing it. And I and I know we're not talking about projects, but I got a chance to work with Nicole Kidman, mm-hmm. and she is so good, mm-hmm. and she gets so entrenched in her character that. Like the, clearly the situations we were going through never happened to her. Right. But she was so entrenched in her character that her, she believed that it was happening to her to the degree where she said, if I, if I don't protect myself emotionally afterward, yeah. yes, she said, I will get PTSD. Yes. Cause yes. your body doesn't know what's real and what's not. Right. Right. She said, I get massages. I go jogging because if I don't, treat myself, uh, if I don't, pr- um, protect myself rather, you know, you, 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 you and, and I said, you'll literally develop PTSD because your body doesn't know the difference. Yeah. And I think I was so new in my career at the time that I, I didn't know how to protect myself. And I'd still, I do believe there was some directorial choices that not everyone would agree with. Such as in, in in hiring the real first. Oh, in hiring the real. Yeah. Okay, just yeah. hire yeah. good actors. Hire good actors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. good. That's good too. Yeah, it's always good advice. That's the bumper sticker <laughs> takeaway. Hire good actors. Yeah, no. Well, it's interesting because per your Nicole Kidman thing, um, I all I I think sometimes stars get bad raps for being divas or whatever, but. I think it's to that point also important to go. Sometimes if they had an emotional scene, they're going to have to take extra steps just the same way. The star football player is going to have to treat himself a little bit differently than the guy that's been on the bench. Same way guys that just came back from outside the wire, just saw contact are going to be get treated a little bit differently than guys that were sitting on the fob stuff in their face in the chow hall. (laughs) Like, Every, whoever it is, that, the man in the arena, whoever it is that's doing a lot of shit, if you're in the business, your job is to cater to them a little bit more because they're going to need a little bit of extra buffering. And I think sometimes, and I'm not one to stand up for the elites or the Hollywood aristocracy and all that, but I do think there is something 
in the acting, in the theatrical profession to go, Hey, if you're going out there on a limb emotionally, do what you got to do. If you end up blowing up at the director because you're just in an emotionally fragile state. I, I, I think of what Ridley Scott said when he was interviewed about uh, Russell Crowe after Gladiator came out mm. and somebody at the times, or I forget where it was like said, uh, Oh, isn't Russell Crowe very hard to work with? And he's like, all the great ones are. <laughs> what, what, what do you think? I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to, I mean, he's the one carrying the fucking movie, right? Yeah. I mean, this is me saying it, not Ridley Scott, but I think he just said all the great ones are, but I mean, the implication being like, well, I'm, I'm asking him to go to these emotional places. So do I expect well-balanced, good equilibrium in his responses? Maybe not. You know, he's probably gonna be a little fucking nuts. Yeah. But that that's because he just slew somebody in the fucking arena, you know, and, or a lion was trying to maul him two seconds ago. So yeah, he's going to be a little fucking frazzled. So, and, and I think sometimes to the, to the civilian in the movie or theater space, it appears like what a fucking asshole, what a diva. Can't you just be like any other guy on the, on the, uh, you know, conveyor belt working on the, on the assembly line. It's like, well, no, cause you're not working an assembly line. One person is emotionally anteing up right. so much more right. than everybody else that you go. Yeah. All right. Well, they're going to be a dick right now. I get it. Right. That happens. You've worked at this point now with a lot of big talent and all that. I mean, does that bear out in your experience? Do you see that? Hey, if they're willing to go to a place like what's your level of expectation as a peer with them in a scene where, you know, Hey, you know, I get it. Like the camera's on them. This is their shot. They're being asked to ante up something. Right. I mean, how do you feel? Do you feel like, Hey, you really shit on me? Like what's being a bad, what's being a diva in your mind? I've luckily only had great experiences and I've worked with even some people who are notoriously difficult, but I, and and I'm grateful for that because I'm like, hey, if, um, like, uh, if if he or she can do this, you know, I, I even like with the, going back to Nicole Kidman, I learned so much from her. There was um, a scene we shot where I'm looking at her, but she's behind the camera, and uh, and they could have put a uh, they could have oh, taped wow. they could have taped a dot to the yeah. camera to show me where to look, right. But and she could have been sitting in her chair, but she stood behind the camera to give me eye line. What a team player! Right? Wow! Holy shit! Um, so I luckily have I, I can't think of anybody, even, um, like I said, even some of the most notoriously difficult. They've been great. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and, that's and really uh, awesome. I've I guess I've just been grateful, but and and I, I I I take away only the good. I and I can't think of anything really. That's incredible. Yeah. Let's talk about when you finally got to break out of being a cop. Yeah. Right? On screen. So, like, when you go to Mike's IMDP page, it's, you know, <laughs> cop, cop, officer this, blah, 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 blah. And then finally, the first credit that you have, if I'm not mistaken, where you're not a cop, was on a really popular show. Right? Right. And how did it... And, and you had a... I mean, that was a pretty fun role to play. Oh, did you see it? <laughs> I, well, I remember it. Yeah, from the from the show. Oh, I mean, wow. when I saw it, I mean, I binge-watched that show. I remember I was in Germany at the time, and I binge-watched oh, wow. it. And the German censors, I had to use a VPN to get around to see it because the Germans wouldn't let it play on Netflix. 
And if you guys are wondering what show I'm talking about, IMDb, Mike's page, and look for the first role he had that was not a cop. And you'll see what it was. I didn't even know that. I would have to look. I didn't. Was it might not be in chronological order, but it was chronologically of when it was released or when the okay. show came out. I think is when it listed. So that again, correct been. me if I'm wrong. But no, it could have been. But I mean, uh, yeah. Did that role stand out to you though? Is is kind of a turning point of oh, like yeah. something new? It was the design was. I'm want. I need to build a resume and get an agent and get 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 in the union. So. If they want cop stuff, I'm going to give them the cop sure, stuff. My sure. er, my early headshots, I looked like David Caruso and uh, NYPD Blue. Yeah. So my goal was build up the cop stuff, and then I can do once I get enough resume and mm-hmm. I'm in the in the union, I and I have an agent, then I can start shooting for the other stuff. So, um, it was a double win, and I f- I remember joking because I'm like I must look like the type. I'm either cops or I'm staunch Republicans because I started going for all these Republican roles. So that was not a one-off. That wasn't out of nowhere. Like you had been going for, because the role you played was like kind of a Bill O'Reilly type. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, was that the direction to they even Actually, say that? Uh, Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck. Because originally that's it was right. a, a chalkboard. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Oh, they're really mimicking Glenn Beck. Yeah. Um, but that, but, but that was not the first time you'd been called in. Even for I, to audition for something like that, I had done some other stuff. Yeah, I did an episode of a, of a comedy where I played a uh, like a Dwight type uh, character, oh, that's funny. and so I did. I did that. Might have been where I started getting looked at as other stuff. I don't know if I can. I think the onion. I might be able to say, but but whatever. <laughs> um, I honestly I forget because auditions for me are a blur. You you read it no, and totally. then you forget it. Of course. So I don't. I, I I'm surprised that, that could very well be that that was the first non cop role I had. But in and around that time, uh, it, it was I had just gotten an gotten an agent, so I can actually articulate to him. Let's just shoot for some other stuff. So he didn't even need to submit me for the cop roles. He he still was, but um. I think we might have made a conscious effort. Let's see what else is out there. And that's a, that's a nice change of pace. That's a good natural deviation, and it's an interesting character to play. Yeah. Right? It's great for the real, right? It shows some some stretch and some, oh, hey, you can also do this. And there's a lot of words and yeah. stuff to go with this. In, yeah. f- in fact, I'm trying to think, because some of the earlier roles I got, like I said, were because I did the ride-along mm, yeah. or because I was a uh, first responder. Didn't audition for the, for those things. This was also in and around the time where I was getting the roles that were not cops, and it was by an audition where I got earned, you, so and it, it felt in. great. Where I really Bad. went in with twenty other people who looked like me, and I earned it by good acting. Mm. That felt great. I bet that did. Yeah, I bet that did. Are you still with the same agent? Yeah. Wow. I had to think because uh, yes and no. I, I started with a great guy, Marv Josephson, old school. Ah, oh, you book kid. You, I'll tell him you can't dance at two weddings. No problem. And Christopher Silveri, who took over for Marv, gotcha. is who I'm still with gotcha. this day. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's great to have a long-term relationship like that in this business. Yeah. I am so grateful. Yeah. And early on, I wasn't, because he knew I couldn't, you know, take on series regulars or, or leave the, yeah. the, the, the country. I. I he I wasn't earning a lot of money for him, uh, especially early on, and he stuck with me. So I'm I'm wow always grateful. That's huge. That's huge. Um, what role 
really popped for you, really meant a lot when you got it. And obviously we'll speak euphemistically about it, but was there a role that really you were like, okay, <laughs> this, this, was a, this was a major turning point or this really leveled me up or something like that? There were a few, and, and I loved, there was a natural progression to things. Like, okay, here's a, this is a one-liner as a cop. Here's this as not a cop. Here's this, this, and this. This is my first time with uh, a credit at the front rather than the back. Mm. So I, it's nice to look back and see a natural progression of things. But I think it was around 2016 or 17, I auditioned for a movie about the Washington Post mm-hmm. and the Pentagon Papers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steven Spielberg was the director. I can say that. We can say who the stars were, I think, too, right? Yeah. I realize that Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. They'll, make, they'll have careers <laughs> in the business. They're yeah. very good. They should make it. Yeah. And uh, I remember I was still uh, working in the chief of detectives office at the time, and they they cleared it. I'm like, you know, he's he's there's going to be three weeks. Um, is he free? And like, yeah, he's free. They NYPD gave me off, and I spent three weeks with uh, probably one of the greatest group of actors it was it was yeah. quite an ensemble piece it was um and then directed by steven spielberg i i felt like i should have been there delivering coffee <laughs> to the newsroom um but then again even when you've had jobs where you're supposed to be delivering coffee you always level up from that anyway so <laughs> this was a good inversion I mean, let me a- dance for you <laughs> uh, so yeah. it, it it was definitely a ter- it was it's weird i always hear actors saying it's humbling yeah. When, I think what they mean is the opposite of humbling. Like when they win an award, they say, I'm so humbled. Like, no, you're humbled when you don't win an award. But I, I'm starting to to see how that word can be used even when you accomplish something to be proud of. Because it was humbling in the same sense that, I mean, look who I'm surrounded sure. by. Um, and I'm sharing a green room with these people. And we right. we would just talk all day for, and this went again for, I would just do day players, but like you got three weeks on this. Yeah. It was miraculous. And then to, to be in the same, not just in this, to be in the same room with Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And even though I wasn't in the scenes for those three weeks, it was all in the newsroom. I got to sit at my desk and watch them shooting these other scenes just to see his process and to see the other actors. Did you, did you loiter on set just to check things What's out? That? Did you loiter on set? Just to, <laughs> I mean, like no. justifiably, like just no. to see and watch. And I wasn't loitering and only in the sense that if, if I wasn't in the scene, I'm in the background because I'm yeah. at my desk. Okay. It was, gotcha. a, it was a, gotcha. yeah, I should explain. It's a huge newsroom. Sure, 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 sure. And, uh, so if we're shooting in Tom Hanks's office, I'm sitting right. at my desk, right. but gotcha. I, even if I was in, the, I couldn't have been happier than if I was yeah. in that scene because yeah. I, I got to watch. And then again, just to see their process and like Meryl Streep stayed in character, whereas Tom Hanks didn't. He was able, he's one of the actors, He at least for this, I was able to watch him kind of snapping it out. But um, she stayed in character. But I, I think it was Steven Spielberg that I was, I was just in awe of. What, what were you, what was most impressive about Spielberg to you? I, I read the original script and it was good, mm-hmm. but then I saw the Spielberg magic that was added to the script where it's not like, let's just, okay, we show the printing press, but we show the printing press and the floor is shaking. And 
Um, it's like you can almost like there's pixie dust in the air, but um, you can almost picture it through. Like I used, to, I loved his movies, like the um, the summer of '82 with ET and Poltergeist, yeah, and, sure. and I was, you know, I was actually. I was there was a great summer. It was that fall there that went pretty right, bad. But right, um, right, right. Uh I was able to to kind of see it through those eyes uh, the eyes of a fan. But I, I saw what was added to the script, and I know that that was Steven Spielberg's input because it was just like a little touch of, of magic thrown into it. Did you see dailies on that? No. Did you watch the dailies? No. So you really only saw this when the movie came out, right? right? What about on set? Could, were you impressed with him on set? Was Absolutely. There some, what was special about him? What, what's in your experience? What makes him great? Forget about the end product, but just on set, what makes him great? We, his, he's got a, It's a business for him, so he's got a process. Like you'll come in, and it was. We all, even though I'm, I'm a minor character in. Uh, this could also have to do with budget too, but all of us were given training. I was, I played an editor. So mm. I was given several days worth of training just on how to edit a mm. newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, just that level of detail. And I had to write the headline of, of uh, the, the, the release of the Pentagon Papers. So I, he had me practice on just how to write that, which is great. And that's just one aspect of it. But where, where I'm going, the amount of detail, but also he knew exactly what he wanted. He had an assistant director who kind of, do some staging. We're going to loosely, this is what it might look like. But he came in and he just made decisions. You're doing this, you're doing that. For the actors. Like, hey, for the, for the actors. This, yeah. Okay. Um, you're waiting for this guy. Um, I had a question. It's like, yes, you, that's what's happening. I did, I did a, a take where I'm like, are we really doing this? Oh, and I exhaled. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if we should do this. And he just says, try it without the exhale, which is his way of saying, yeah, don't do that. Don't sure, do that. Sure. But I wasn't like crushed and it didn't freak right, me out. Right, right, right. Um, and so then his he, bedside manner was his good. His bedside manner. And he yeah. literally, while he was giving instruction, he had his hand on my shoulder. And I'm like, Steven Spielberg is literally giving me a pat on the back. Um, I was, it can put me completely at ease. Maybe he's aware. I'm sure yeah. he's aware. Of, of his legendary sure. status, but he put me completely at ease. Um, but I, I was so impressed by the fact that he, his decisions were quick and uh, methodical. There was none of like, oh, what should we do? Mm. Maybe we'll try. It was direct. He actually he used the old time. He didn't use his his, uh, his thumb and uh, fingers right. to, to make the uh, the frame. He used um, I guess it's like a loop. Yeah. But he he looked at the shot through the loop. Wow. So it was there was an element of old school. Um, it was it was it was everything. He was and we every now and then he would be telling stories. So a couple from the set of Jaws, which I don't quote me, but he was talking about oh when when somebody came here and. Um, I'm like, who am I? How did, how did this happen? It was was just from top to bottom. It was just an amazing experience. So I know, um, I think I might've said this before on the show, but Sidney Lumet in his autobiography says that he always tried to make sure that his sets, this is his direct quote. And I always loved it because I think it's the best way to run any kind of production 
in, in the theater or film space. But he said the sets were always filled with laughter and concentration. Mm. How would you characterize the set that Spielberg runs? I wouldn't say there was much laughter. And it wasn't because it wasn't fun. It sure was. But it was very reverential. It was mm. even these are the best actors in the business and all of them were yes, sir. No, sir. To him. Wow. It was, and, and also the material is, is actually some, some of it was, was a little lighthearted. Um, but, but it was, uh, yeah, you know what? I, maybe I'm, I'm about to correct what I just said. Cause there were, there were moments where we did, we did laugh, but the, the, the tone of it was, was very serious and very professional. It was very nine to five. Um, there was no panic. Um, again, to name drop, I had also done a, a Scorsese film and everyone just spoke at a very low volume. And it was as if like, okay, okay, we're now going to do this. Like you don't want to disturb the scene. You want to make sure everybody's like right there and we're all serving what's going I, on. There's just, it's, and I'm sure it's set by, by Mr. Scorsese that it's just, this is the tone on one of his sets. And I've only done one film for him. But this is how we all. No, I'm sorry, I did too. I was. Uh, I, I can't believe I forgot one. But and both. Sorry, were, we can't say what they are anyway. No, so it's all right. Yeah, yeah. And so both were exactly the same. Um, and it was just, and even we had the same assistant director on both the films, mm. the Spielberg film and the Scorsese film. Oh, really? But the tones were very different. But interesting. Every, everyone, it was like we were in a library, and even the the crew moving things, and and uh, it was. It was awesome. That feels like a very actor-friendly way to direct, to make it that reverential. Because there is something very disorienting about, hey, Bob, we need you to move that exactly. over there and all this. Okay, yeah. ready? Go. Yeah. You know, and you're exactly. like, Holy shit. Like, what? I'm like in the middle of an industrial workspace, and now i got to have this intimate moment. Exactly. So it seems like that would be a very friendly way. Spielberg wasn't like that, though. He wasn't that quiet. He was more, It was. you said, reverential. Yeah, only it was just it was just so professional, mm. and I. But I also think I mean nobody was like, you know, uh, this. I'm sure Animal House was shot under different circumstances, right. but things like that. This was all right. just so professional, and I was really pleased to see all of the other actors who one might expect an ego from had none of it. And and again, I remember just seeing this. Some of the top actors in the world saying, "Oh yes, sir. Um, yes, sir." And and uh, um. There's like decorum. There was a decorum. And yeah. uh, it was just, again, I, a lot goes on down to budget because the the amount of detail, even if you looked at, at the desks, there were there were uh, uh, letters and memos in character within, wow. within the office. Wow. And he could also shoot in any direction without hitting a uh, uh, um, like a, a video village or a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. you can shoot even up point in any direction, but and I'm kind of meandering around, but it was just so well done. And it was clearly designed by people who've done this many, many times before. And because he's done like war of the worlds, this is a walk in the yeah, park. Yeah, 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 this right, is about right. people and yeah. this is nothing. So it was very nine to five. Do you think there was something else to the fact that it was supposed to be a newsroom? So there needs to be a sense of camaraderie and therefore it's important that star or no star, you guys got to spend time together. Yeah. 
Like, right. Like, did he make, do you think that was a conscious effort to make sure that there's some rapport building? So we understand the hierarchy of the newsroom. Definitely. Interacted in that space. Definitely. Right. So it translates onto screen. In fact, we had, I think it was at least a couple days and it wasn't just me who got the, the, the training on how to edit a a newspaper, even like the little symbols that are used. Mm. But in the first couple days, um, actually I was, they gave me the wrong time and I was late and I walked in on the, one of the, one of the writers of the Washington post talking to the cast. And as soon as I walked in and they said, now he is your enemy. He's explaining the hierarchy. He's your enemy. He is your copy. He's your copy chief. So he's going to correct what you write. Um, and I sat next to this, this, this woman and she's very mild matter and she's listening. And we all just talked about the different relationships and, and like you said, the hierarchy, um, she's just in a baseball cap and, we're just talking and, and I just realized, oh, that's, that's Jesse Mueller. She just won a Tony for uh, um, Beautiful the, uh, on Broadway. And, yeah. and everyone is just so down to earth. And I'm like, again, I'm, who am I to be here? But um, we, yeah, we, we received a lot of, uh, well, not a lot, a couple days. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't necessary. We didn't, that, that, uh, was just an added touch for all of this film and TV stuff that you've started to do at a higher, increasingly higher and higher level. What about theater? Have you done theater? Have you made it back to theater? I haven't. All the time I was a cop, I really couldn't. Yeah, you can't I couldn't commit take to the that. time off. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I joined Equity, which was good and bad, but I'm now kind of pigeonholing myself to. To, um, I joined Equity when I was on the, on the job, so I couldn't just hop onto Broadway at the at the top level. I should have allowed myself more time sure. to return to theater at the community level and things like that. Um, but now I'm looking, I'm looking to do it again. I'm kind of, mm. I, I think it's time. But also, you also got a strike, so that helps too. Yeah, and, and you're I'm, and you're out, and you're not doing the job anymore. So yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm open to yeah. it. And I've had some auditions. I, I just read for Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, uh, and I'm, I'm still taking uh, some uh, voice classes and, and acting in song classes, which are really paying off. I think they're they're actually very cool. Where? Where are you doing classes? Actually, I'm doing. Oh God, <laughs> Randy Graff, who was in the original company of Les Up. She teaches uh, of, of acting for in song class. So that that was not by accident. <laughs> I'm assuming. Nope. Yeah. No. In fact, all of my voice teachers have been in the show. But even the ones at Montclair State. No, I'm okay. sorry. Okay, except for no, that. just okay. the private voice teachers. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, actually, except for one. But I wanted to to uh, sharpen my audition technique from in musical theater, mm. um, and I actually kind of lost the way. I think I lost my perspective a bit. And actually, she she helped me out a lot because I'm thinking again. I'm. Musical theater to me was is these big grand gestures, and you're playing for two thousand yeah. seats. And yeah. um, she's the one that really kind of reminded me that no, acting is acting, and if the gesture comes out of your acting, that's good, and then it's meant to be. Yeah. It's organic. Yeah. And I look back at her. There's a video of her performance in Les Misérables, and I'm like, she. There's no grand gestures like I I, I thought yeah. she was doing, and uh, so. All of that, I think a lot of my training in the movie and TV, which is all on the job training for the most part, is interestingly paying off 
as that's now prepared me for musical theater because that's I think the the, the style musical theater has gone is very it's it's the same style as movies and and TV, which is much more subtle, much more real. Um, either that, or I'm just thinking they're separate crafts when they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's a hell of a testament to where your career has gone that you're getting Broadway auditions though. And just getting your hat in the ring yeah. all ready for that. Because like we talked about before the show, like who knows where live performance is going and what kind of growth industry that might be if AI takes off and all that, my own right. pet theory. But um, I've, you, I'm sitting here literally having angel and devil moments because I'm like, <laughs> do I keep this going? We've been going for three and a half hours. No way. This is fucking awesome. Who's going to listen to this? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Anyone yeah, listening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank Your you. Your mom's going to listen. That's it. She's going to listen. Um, no, listen. It, but I mean, this is... I mean, but it's been, it's been effortless. I mean, this has been fucking phenomenal. It's so goddamn interesting on the police, the Leo side, the personal side. And then of course the artistic side, I can't end this interview though without talking about Sentinels. So let's talk about that and where the idea came from and the execution of that. First off, did you go back to training, voice training in prep for the album, or were you already in training? Were you already going back to classes by that point? I hadn't, but in hindsight, I think I should have. You think so? Because really? I hear things on it where I'm like, eh, a good voice teacher probably would have pushed that vowel a little more forward and things like that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. But uh, are you happy with it? I am. Yeah, I am for the most part. I, I, um, it took long enough. Like I said a couple times, it took 10 years. So if I'm not happy with it, um, then there's something wrong because I had so much time to correct anything that sure. um, I am. And looking back, it, it actually tells the story of that, the 10-year the period as well. So I have no problem with the fact that it took so long. I'm, I mean, and it's from a, from a personal standpoint as well, I, uh, it, 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 I forget if it was even here before we talked or on here because we've been talking for so long <laughs> that it defines a period in my life. Yeah. Um, one of those songs I was inspired to record it at a funeral. So that to me reminds me of that funeral. You recorded it at the no, funeral? No, no, no. Oh. The, the song itself. It came from the funeral. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, I was like, God, this is such a beautiful song. I I kind of want to do something with it and and actually was able to channel that that energy into something. Um, it's a really good focus when you just have creative energy that you don't know what to do with, because when you're producing and recording and singing and doing the orchestrations and the arrangements, it's so time consuming that, and I don't recommend it, hire, <laughs> hire, looking back, hire people for these things so you can focus on one thing, but it really allows you to, 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 to channel creative energy in, into one direction, you know, for where it takes literally, it could take a year for a three and a half minute song. Yeah. Um, I also didn't have the benefit of, of a full orchestra. So I outsourced, especially during the pandemic. I was like, all these musicians are home. So uh, there's this great uh, piano player, great guitarist, this great uh, wow. um, Julian Pipes player 
who normally plays for the Lord of the Rings symphony. He's available now. So um, I was able to record remotely and bring all these people into, into one track. So for you, what did you know what the album was going to be when you started off on the 10 year journey? No. In fact, it changed direction. It was originally going to be all New York based songs. It was going to be sort of a tribute to New York. Um, the title Sentinels, I was originally going to do stars song stars. Uh, let me zero. The Lamers are on podcast, no, folks. No, listen. Hey, it's what moves uh, you. You can't deny it. So it's much. Right. It, it, it keeps coming in and out of my life. But I was going to do the Policeman's song. Of course. <laughs> Stars. Of course. Where, where he's a line, you were the Sentinel. So that's where I'm like, oh, Sentinels. That's what it's going to be called. Um, so that song never made it. So, but it, did, it changed a number of times. And then I remember looking up at like these gothic statues and gargoyles all across Manhattan thinking like, that's so cool. I'm like, imagine the stories they yeah. could tell. So that sort mm-hmm. of became, uh, another angle of the title. And then of course the, the people who watch over New York city, there's another angle of that title, but another long winded, it's probably why it's gone on so long. Cause my answers are so long winded, but no, they're fucking um, great. No, thank I, you. I got no complaints. No, Jesus. But, um, it did, it, it, it changed a number of times. So it's no longer a, an album all about New York songs. And instead it's about, what would you say? I mean, Sentinels implies <clears throat> this is about, it's almost like a song for uh, an album for first responders, but that's me put it laying that on. What do you think it is? What was your intent with, with it ultimately? Huh? But for the first time I'm stumped and it should be an easy question. Cause I don't want to, turn people off it's it's just an album of big bold ballads sort of that cross the genres of americana standards there's a fair amount of broadway in there Mm -hmm. um those who like big like big irish ballads and those who are seeing like Josh Groban and Sweeney Todd right now, yeah. those are the people that are probably going to latch onto this. But I didn't think going in that it was going to be as melancholy as my first. Mm. Mm. But the response has been that it might be as melancholy as my first. I, I tried to make find songs that were a bit more inspirational. And this is where I say I don't want to turn people off because there's definitely an audience for people who like a little um, – emotional music. Sure. Um, and I thought kind of some were stirring, some were, are, um, uh, like I said, inspirational, but I think one reviewer called it a word I had to look up lugubrious. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So even though it wasn't my intent, I, it, it's, that might be the perception. When you, when you stuck with the name Sentinels though, for the title, why did you think that summed up these big, I won't say lugubrious because that's not, I don't feel that way about them. I think big, um, anthemic totemic ballads. Why did you think that summed them up? Ballad or not. I think the songs each kind of tell a story and have a perspective. Mm, Yeah. And 
as someone who's watching over, it's sort of like that disinterested third party, like a, a fly on the wall to these stories that are being told. And I kind of felt that way as a cop. I'm like, how am I now just thrust into your life? Like, you, you uh, two seconds ago, I was eating a, a hot dog. Yeah. And now I'm in the middle of your drama. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's sort of like, going back to those statues, it's, I always said, God, the stories they must tell. They, they're yeah. able to look down over the city and just see a million stories, but they don't say a mm. word. It's sort of like the listener to the singer. I'm just, I have this window into your world on, on, on so many levels. And, uh, I'm just going to be the, the disinterested observer. It's not crazy. That's not crazy. It's you a beautiful it. album. Well, thank it's you. It's a beautiful album. I, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the first one too. Well, I enjoyed them both. I mean, a lot of covers, but yeah. beautiful songs and beautiful selections. Um, tell everybody how they need to follow you, where they need to get the album. Um, and yeah, anything else, website, Instagram, sure. all that stuff. Instagram is a good place to start. It's Michael P. Devine, D-E-V-I-N-E. And on there is my link tree. And there, that you can pretty much get everything. But but Sentinels in the first one, which is called Songs of Valor and Hope, that's all on iTunes and Spotify and Amazon, wherever you get your music. <laughs> this was um, beyond a treat to talk. This was awesome. Well, I think so too, and I'm so grateful. And and, and I I do feel like I owe you a copay. <laughs> well, how much have they it's been a while how much have they gone up who are you to? with who's your insurance I don't know we gotta, we gotta <laughs> oh, look at boy. who that is listen no this is it, I, I couldn't help but ask the questions it's fucking um, it, there's so much rich subject matter there it's amazing you haven't written a non-fiction an autobiography a memoir um, but I love to see how you've mined this artistically and for what's coming down the pike do you want a bonus story for those who have made it so far sure because I think it ties in Everything. And, and it's a story that'll kind of blow your mind that I haven't told in a while. Okay. When my father was first shot, he, 71, 72, I guess 72, he received an award from President Nixon. And the whole family was invited to the White House where he was presented with his plaque. Wow. It's gonna, there's going to be even more wow in a second. I was a little baby and I was crawling around the floor of the Oval Office I know. <laughs> you should see the look I'm getting. It's going to tie it in with a few things. My uncle Larry went under the table and he's like, Michael, get out from under there. And he saw me pulling on a microphone. Oh, come on. Oh, get the fuck out of here. Just wait. He saw me pulling on a microphone and didn't think much of it. And Watergate broke about two weeks later. Come on. And for years, I would never tell that story because who's going to believe it? They would just sit there going, come on. No, we kept that story in the family. Nobody said anything. And then. Until you're on set with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. I did. Tom Hanks said, oh, come on. He he? He goes, even Bob Zemeckis would find that's a bit of a stretch. He did not he say that. He said that. That's hilarious. Because it gets even weirder. Because in 2000, I think it was 16, they released the Watergate tapes, the right. Nixon tapes. And I said, that's interesting. Because again, I wouldn't tell people this because who would believe me? Right. Even my Uncle Larry was like, I'm not telling anybody that story. When they released the Nixon tapes, I was able to find that interview. 
<laughs> I looked, I had, we have pictures of it. The date is stamped on the back. So I looked up the date of his, you get the date of the, uh, the tapes. I typed wow. in the date within minutes. I had that meeting with my family meeting Nixon on the, did it capture your uncle telling you to get out from under the table? It didn't. I, I wish that I, I wish I could say that it did. And I so was So he probably was like tugging on you, like not like something actually, it was probably yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Wow. But we told that story in the family for years. And I really wished I'm like, Michael, get out from under there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, there was I was you hear me crying a lot. Wow. I just trying to think I must have been one or two. Um but I, I thought that would be an interesting story to tie this all together. And a bonus for whoever made it this far. Seriously. That's an amazing bonus Crazy, story. Crazy, right? All right. Let's end it on that. Okay. This was a fucking blast. It was. Thank you so much. Seriously. That was the savage wonder of Michael Devine. Wow. You know, it's funny. I think I do tear up in person now that I think about it. Because I was going to say it's very special that Michael and I both teared up at different points and sometimes at the same points uh, in that episode. Um, but now that I think about it, I think that happens a lot when we're in person. We do go shades deeper and it's um, incredibly moving to see people's reactions up close. Um, anyway, this was a, an unbelievable episode. I need to thank Mike for, for taking the time to come out to Cornwall we got to record that whole episode at the parlor, at Vet Rep's parlor, um, which was a blast. And um, more to follow. More to follow with Mike Devine. Okay, I need to thank, while I'm thanking Mike's, I should probably thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting this episode together. Um, for everybody that wants to know what's going on at Vet Rep, there is a ton of stuff that we should talk about. Um, so, here's the biggest news. Savage Wonderground is back. Savage Wonderground, we are taking our immersive art show to Boston on Halloween. I am not going to tell you the location because it is a secret location. It is a badass location, smack in the middle of downtown Boston, literally half a block away from the Boston Commons. It is an incredible location. Um, we have 50, 50 tickets to give away for people to come hang out with us at what is going to be the most badass party, most badass Halloween party in Boston. Um, because it is a Savage Wonderground immersive art event on Halloween, the event is titled Ghost Story. It will be featuring former Savage Wonder guests such as Nicholas F. Stathew of Cross, Massachusetts, Amy Sexauer. Ben Fortier, Dave Camposano, Iman Caffell, who will also be promoting his new book, The Resolute Path, thanks to our sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. So at the same party, you'll see a Savage Wonderground event with Iman, and then once that event's over, it becomes a book launch party for Iman. Um, and then, of course, Dex will be there. Um, Dex is actually utilizing a different skill set of hers doing the live art for this show. It is going to be incredible. The cover charge is zero. It is a free event. It is a free event in large part thanks to Second Mission Foundation, our sponsor for the night. Um, 
but it is a curated event in that we do have a dress code. The dress code for the event is jackets and business attire for ladies or costumes. So, I mean, it's Halloween, so feel free to wear a costume. And as I say, we only have space for 50. So what you have to do to come to the show is you have to RSVP to us. Um, one of the easiest ways to do that is just to email us at info at vetrep.org, info at vetrep.org. Or um, in the days to come, we will have a link to a Google form out there, which you can fill out and send to us. And then that will be the preferred way for you to RSVP. But if you RSVP and we get back to you, we will confirm your tickets and we will let you know the specific location that this event will be at. Um, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be a night of intense Halloween-based poetry, a little bit of creative nonfiction, music, art, and then, of course, a book launch after. So think of it as a badass Halloween party with two events wrapped up under that umbrella. Savage Wonderground, Ghost Story, and Iman Cafell's book launch. Anyway, it's going to be an incredible night. So if you're in the Boston or greater Boston area, um, those of you that know Nick know he's coming down from New Hampshire. Ben's coming over from Rhode Island. So we would love to see all of you there. It is a New England-based show. Come on out. Uh, hit us up so you can get one of the tickets before they are gone. And we'd love to see you there. It's going to be an incredible way to bring in a very literary and creative Halloween. So info at vetrep.org, info at vetrep.org, or in the dangerously near future, you can go to our Google form and fill that out and let us know if you'd like to come and how many tickets you would like. And if they, we still have them, they'll be yours. Okay. I think I've said everything I need to say. Oh, I'll just slip this in there. Uh, yeah, there is an open bar. The rumors are true. I'm not going to lie. We're going to hit you up for donations when you get there. Because we got to cover an open bar. But open bar, finger foods, it's going to be badass. I mean, if you're looking for a swank night out that is free, and okay, you give a donation at the end or whatever. You know, we're right on. The event is, you know, within a football field of great parking. Um so just a great excuse to have a great night out in Boston. So um, we love having these road games and going out and seeing everybody in different uh, towns. So if you're in the Boston, New England area, it's worth the trip in to do this. It's going to be an incredible night. So can't wait to see you guys there. But again, highly selective night because we only have 50 seats. So first come, first serve. Okay, um, I thanked Mike Neal already, which normally I don't do till after, but I already got that out of the way just because we were thanking people named Michael that had helped us out in the past week. So I'll thank Mike Devine again and say on behalf of everyone at Veterans Repertory Theater, thanks for tuning in. We always appreciate you guys listening. And we will see you next time as we explore the savage wonder of veterans in the arts. <laughs>